Hello, welcome back to Warrior's Den Podcast, episode 53. Today's guest is a gentleman by the name of Paul Johnson. Johnston, I met him many years ago in 2012. I believe we both sort of agreed it was probably then uh, when we did a course with an instructor course with CT707 founder Nir Maman. Uh, Paul is a Karamaga expert, a Bujikan ninjutsu black belt at holding the highest rank he is able to attain and a veteran as well as a police officer his pedigree is phenomenal and he lives in australia so all you australian listeners and fans may love this one uh you can reach paul by the way if you want to train right now their website is down but street edge krav maga international on facebook best way to get a hold of them. But first, this podcast is brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. In particular, our new website, www.utkmu.com, where we have put up for you our curriculum as we teach it here. Whether you're a student looking to expand your Krav Maga or an instructor looking to see how we have developed our curriculum, you are welcome to see. There is some free content, though it is limited at this time. I am a one-man show, of course, so I can only do so much at one time. There is our entire white belt curriculum up and most of our novice curriculum up uh, in the paid sections. You just go to the website and go to pricing and set up your pricing plan. Of course, you can access the free section, which at the moment is very limited because obviously the focus is on the other content. And down the road, we'll release our advanced curriculum publicly, but at this time, it will not be there. So you have something to look forward to. And of course, if you support this podcast, it's a great way to get it. So again, that is utkmu.com. Now, of course, you can follow our regular stuff uh, on Facebook, Urban Tactics Kramaga, uh, same on Instagram and on Twitter, which is just relaying everything else really is Urban Tactics KM. And of course, if you're in the Metro Vancouver area, our regular training website is www.urbantacticskm.com. And of course, our blog, where my weekly, semi-weekly ramblings are posted, as well as this podcast is www.utcamblog.com. Pretty sure urbantacticskramaga.com also redirects there, but you get the idea. Really, it's brought to you by our new website, utkmu.com. Anyways, check it out. And this is, uh, I haven't done one this long in a long time because I'm getting back into this. So it was a great conversation with Paul. We talk about, you know, his Krav Maga background, his ninjutsu background. We talked a little bit about global threats going on in the world, violence as a, as, as a staff, students, as far as what we want to see our students, what we expect. It's always interesting to see other instructors' perspectives as well on this. So it's great listened two and a half hours today so give or take quite quite the one so enjoy with street edge kramaga founder in australia paul johnson you're listening to the warriors day brought to you by urban tactics kramaga turning lambs into lions So I have with me uh, Paul Johnston from Australia. I met him uh, many years ago at a Nir Maman uh, instructor seminar, or course rather. And uh, he's uh, an interesting character, ninja master, Krav Maga expert, military expert. But uh, I'll let you uh, tell me a little bit about your background, your uh, military, martial arts, etc., how you got into Krav Maga. 
No worries, Jonathan. And thanks, mate, for the invite. And it's great to great to be here, mate. Great to talk to you and great to see you after many years. Um, yeah. yeah, we went back to, was it 2012? 2012, I think it was. So. Yeah, many, yeah, one of the earlier courses, I think. That's it, mate. Yeah. Um, mate, I joined the Australian Army in 1985. Um, I did a, a total of 15 years um, in, in the Army. I then left and... Um, and went into the corporate security uh, side of world. And then pretty much as soon as uh, 9-11 happened, I I signed up for the Australian Federal Police. And um, after a long, very, very long uh, process of selection, I was selected uh, as a federal agent. And um, I then spent 10 years in the Australian Federal Police as a federal agent. Um, I left there in... 2012 and pretty much left there on a Monday and I was in Kabul on the Friday um, and decided to go to Afghanistan uh, and take up a role there at the Australian Embassy as a private security contractor. Um, in, in relation to my martial arts, mate, um, pretty much I started doing karate um, when I was about 11, 11 years of age and I was being bullied at school and I um, I rode my bike past this hall one day and I saw the sign and decided to go and check it out. So I did karate for about six, seven years before um, I turned 17. And um, in that period of time, I did Kempo Khan karate and Shotokan karate. And, uh, and then in, pretty much as soon as I turned 17, I went off to the army. So uh, I had that six, seven years of experience in karate. However, it wasn't preparing me or hadn't prepared me for for the street. So um, uh, in late 85, myself and some other soldiers, we got into a, into a pretty nasty street fight with some local guys um, down outside Melbourne, Victoria. And uh, as, a, as a result of that, mate, I got, I got my head kicked in pretty bad. We, there was eight of us and we were up about 60, 70 local guys that didn't really like us. They didn't like us being in their town. They didn't like us in uniform. They didn't like us with the girls. Um, so we got ambushed one night, one night quite bad at a, at a dance. And I, sh- I just uh, interject, I should say you're quite quite a big guy too. So for that to happen is is quite intense. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the reasons, mate, we're outnumbered. And uh, But w- what was really interesting, when we first went to that, um, to that hall, I, I'd already started thinking to myself, something doesn't seem right here. There's not enough guys here. There's not enough men. There's more women than, than men. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, this is very strange. And I actually said to some of my guys, I don't feel comfortable. I think we, you know, this is, I think we need to leave. And unfortunately, because of alcohol in their system and you know, everybody's having a great time, um, mate, yeah, a, a short time later, mate, uh, we, we, we were, we were ambushed and, um, and look, as a result of that, mate, I, I received some serious head injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we fought our way as much as we could. One of our guys was, you know, had, was glassed and it was, a, it was a pretty messy situation and stuff. But we, we held our own for a short period of time and as long as we could until we're outnumbered. But um, yeah, mate, as a result of that, I, I was in hospital for about six days and um, quite, quite nasty head injuries. And, and when I came out of that, one of the first things I actually realised was that um, – that the karate hadn't worked. Mm. And it wasn't so much the, the, the actual skills or the knowledge there, it, it was the methodologies. And um, it was all very linear. So at the time, even though I was basically fighting back and some of the techniques I was using were very effective, 
what actually happened, mate, was it was all linear and, and I wasn't moving. Yeah. And it's something I learned many years later, mate, you know, and uh, so as a result of that, I, I ended up having a, um, uh, a house brick. It was like a large lump of brick hitting the side of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that, that set me up. And, I'm, and I'm, I look back now in reflection, Jonathan, I think it was a good thing that happened because over the, you know, over the many, many years since, it, it's the one thing that stayed in my head was the, the importance of scanning. And it's something I emphasize with my students all the time, you know, the, the fact that you need to scan because even though you think the threat's over, the threat will come from anywhere. So, and on that particular night, I didn't scan because I'd never been taught, you know, from a, mm-hmm. from a martial arts point of view to scan. Um, so that really set off the, the journey for me, mate, to, to find um, a system or methodologies, mate, that I could actually use, you know, both in, the, in my military career, just in my personal life, uh, in all those types of situations. So, um, yeah, mate, yeah, that's kind of where it all started back in late 1985 for me, for this yeah. journey towards Krav and Ninjutsu. Where did you uh, start your Krav journey originally? Mate, that was that was quite interesting because um, in 1999, um, I, I left the military and I went into this, the corporate security world and... Um, and I basically got headhunted. I was I'd, I'd been in security for a, you know on the side for a long period of time, and and I received this call one day from a, a recruiting firm, and they said, "Look, we're interested in recruiting you for a position. It's an executive position. Would you be interested?" And I said, "Yeah." I said, "You know, who's the client?" And they they wouldn't tell me who the client was, mm. and subsequently the client ended up being um, one of the most um, one of the most significant, one of the most um, uh, instrumental uh, Jewish families here in Australia, mm-hmm. and, um, and and as a result of that, that was probably my first, really my first journey into into the into the Jewish community, into uh, into the Krav Maga world. Um, you know, I'd always kind of had known about that from afar, but I'd never had that opportunity, you know, um, within. So. After several interviews and that, I received a position. You know, I was offered the position as an executive uh, protection position, and that was probably the start of it, mate. Because that's when I really um, was exposed to the to the to the to the Jewish community. But you know, the culture more in the culture, and I and obviously I studied more about the history, and that's when I was first introduced to Krav Maga. Um, and at that time, mate, it hadn't really hit the shores of Australia. It it, it wasn't really known like it is now. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel very privileged in that sense and very blessed, mate, that I was actually training with people and interacting with people that had served in the, the IDF and that had served in various you know, specialist units, had received Krav Maga training, and subsequently they, they, they had passed that on to me. And because of my own interest, we were able to, um, we were able to share a lot and I'd been doing uh, ninjutsu for a long period of time at that time and, you know, some other military combatives and stuff. But that was my first exposure to it, mate. And again, uh, I look at everything in my past, mate. I'm very privileged to have um, to have had that opportunity. Yeah, I would say so because if I remember correctly, I'm not that old, but uh, at that time they were still being very secretive about it, the Israelis, and trying not to take it too. It wasn't really till like the 90s, you know, even late 90s where it started really taking off. Hundred um, percent, mate. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're hundred percent correct, there, mate. That was in um, that was in '99, mm-hmm. and as I said, it, it really hadn't, it hadn't really 
you know, you'd never, I'd never known about that before. I hadn't heard of it before. Uh, even the whole, the, the word Krav Maga, and I thought to myself, that's, you know, what is this? So I, I, I was just like a sponge then, mate. I, I took as much in as I could. Yeah. And uh, the whole Israeli kind of, the whole, the whole Israeli martial arts concept, I, you know, was was very still, as you said, it was very secretive to the West in many cases. And, uh, and certainly here in Australia, um, there were people here that had trained in it when they'd done their service in the, yeah. in, the um, in the defence forces and returned to Australia. But um, yeah, it was it, it was it was actually a really interesting time for me, mate. Yeah, that makes sense if it's ninety nine because Emmy uh, passed away in ninety eight, and that's where like it was free for all, you know, politically, and everyone kind of just like, no, we're teaching, we're teaching, and they all sort yeah. of went wherever they went, and uh, the politics of Krav Maga is no different than any other martial art, unfortunately. That's exactly right, mate. Yeah, yeah. And and next minute you've got people walking around with, you know, that just because they're wearing a, a set of camouflage trousers and a black T-shirt, you know, everybody's an expert. Everybody's yeah. A, well, I mean, as yeah. someone, I wasn't in special forces, but I did serve, uh, right, in IDF, and I did have the opportunity to be on the counterterrorism base for a few weeks when I was doing sniper school. And you can really see that it is a bit of a myth that the Israelis created that just because you were in the IDF that you're all of a sudden a Krav Maga expert. Because in the infantry, I probably had about 10 lessons, most of which were focused around my rifle as a, as a combative weapon. And anything else I had already known as a civilian when I was training uh, before I joined. And, you know, I was, you know, I get the occasional student who's still asked like, oh, like, you know, everyone's deadly in the IDF. I'm like, well, if they have a gun, yeah. <laughs> uh, the actual elite guys are very few and far between. And those are the guys like uh, Kal and Shayatet and Duvdevan and units like that. They'll, they'll, they're the ones who get the training and very few people are actually in those units. So it's, uh, it's a bit of a myth unless you know for, for sure where they came from, whether they actually know it at a high level or not. You know, I think it's more marketing. I, I agree with you, mate. Yeah, I, and I've, I've found that too throughout my journeys around the world, and even here in Australia. You know, just because you know, and, and, and with full full respect to to these guys that have served, you know, it's it's not taking away anything from the fact that they've served. But um, it seems to be that even if you've just done your compulsory service, um, the fact that you might have done a few classes automatically. Gives you that uh, yeah. ability to say, "Yeah, I was in, I was in the IDF, and you know, I'm, I know Krav Maga." Um, yeah. And I think that, as you said, unfortunately, too many people use that for marketing. And 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 I guess over the years too, Jonathan, up until I met you know yourself um, and, and did the course with, with Nia, um, you know, I had been in other organisations, I'd done other training programs, other instructor courses with, with Krav Maga, but there was still something there that was missing for me. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't until I saw a video actually of Nia oh, back in, must have been 2000 and I think it was in 2006, I saw a series of videos and I thought to myself, this this guy has the right mindset. This guy's got the same mindset as me or similar, or this is a guy that I want to kind of connect with because uh, it, it seems that he thinks the same way I think about this stuff. And, um, and then at the time, I remember contacting Nia I was actually serving, I was on operations in the Solomon Islands at the time in 2007 uh, with the with the Australian Federal Police. And um, and I remember being in contact with Nia. And if my memory serves me correct, he was actually, I think he might have been in, in, in Gaza at the time because I remember we were both 
on operations at the time. And um, and I actually said to him, I said, look, I'd love the opportunity to come train with you. Um, you know, I, I love what you do. I like I like your stuff. I like the fact that you, you're straight to the point with it. Mm-hmm. And um, and then subsequently over many, many years of, you know, being in contact with Nir and just discussing things, talking, then I had the opportunity to, um, you know, late 2012, uh, after I got back from Afghanistan, to go to, to the US and, and do the course with you guys. So, yeah, I, I can't remember because I did I did about three of his courses. What what location were we in when we, we did? We were in LA, mate. We, oh, yeah, we did, that was we, the LA. Because yeah. yeah. I, 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 yeah. <laughs> I remember it really clearly, mate. Because the airlines lost my luggage for about four days. So I was I think I was wearing the same clothes and buying stuff locally. And yeah, but um, yeah, it was in LA, mate. Because um, yeah. I did one with uh, him in Connecticut and another one in uh, Buffalo, New York, when he was still regularly uh, offering them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And look, you know, and that, that course, mate, you know, obviously meeting near kind of, and then have the opportunity to really kind of interact with him, you know, personally. And then with the group of guys that were there, like, I mean, you know, you saw there was a, there's a, a stack of other great guys there. And, um, and that, that was for me, that was almost like kind of coming home. You know what I mean? It was like, I, I thought, yeah, this is what I've been looking for for such a long period of time. I've been trained, you know, I've trained with other people who are very, very highly skilled and very knowledgeable, but it was, to me, it was the mindset because I'm, I'm very much into the mindset. Um, and, uh, and that was my, that, that really opened my eyes. It did. And from there on in, um, yeah, that's that's kind of where where I've, my journey's kind of taken me with Krav Maga. Yeah, and I know for me too. Uh, I think that was my first course I did, and it was it changed my my approach as well. Uh, I've been with some other organizations too. Like now, I'm basically independent, but I, I associate loosely with a few. And uh, but it just changed that really concept based teaching as opposed to technique based teaching, which I'd seen in other. Uh, organizations and they do talk about con- you know the standard you know twelve original tenants at Krav Maga and stuff, but they're not necessarily applying them. And uh, you know, I can just say anecdotally, at least in the U.S., I don't know, probably Europe's probably a bit different. Australia too is you know when I go to various schools and I see what's being produced, and I'm just like, mm, if they're really assaulted, I don't know if they'll be able to fight through it because they don't necessarily have the conceptual idea of what to do before or after during the technique you know what if the technique fails you get a lot of that you know the what if questions that drive me nuts you know? <laughs> 100% mate yeah and and I, I think it's universal mate to be honest because I'm the same I've been to you know many other uh, organizations I was involved in CAPAP I did the CAPAP instructors course I've done you know I've done uh, done a lot of seminars with different people from, from Israel and throughout the world. And probably the two most significant um, people for me in the Krav Maga world is, is Nia and Itagul, you know, because they had the opportunity to train both. And, and, and again, I like their mindsets. Um, and I've been to so many different places and watched it. And I thought to myself, like you, Jonathan, these people are training their students to die as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that's what they're that's what they're doing. They're training them to die because what they do is to me, what they're doing is they're training their students for the next rank. Mm-hmm. That's all they're doing. Yeah. They're preparing them for the next rank. And, you know, a lot of these people, unless you've had some background, some experience with, with combatives, with, you know, with, with violence in particular, um, it's very hard to teach somebody the concept of, of, of a violent attack if you don't understand the psychology 
of a vulnerable attack yourself. And so what I see is I see a lot of people pulling punches and pulling strikes and they're puffing and panting. And they're kind of, it, it's, they think they're having a workout, but that's all it is. To me, it's just, they're gone through the motions. Yeah. They're not actually yeah. training for, they're not training for survival, mate. Yeah. That's one of the things like in our, in my testing at my school, like I'm pretty Canadian about the day-to-day training, although I push them, but the testing is, is hard to the point where a lot of people will do the first rank and they never come back because they're like, I don't want to do the next test. Yeah. And, and yeah. to me, I'm like, you know, that's okay as long as you understand your, your limits so that you're more willing to avoid fights or avoid violence. Because, you know, if I have, say, a 100-pound student and they're saying, oh, this technique didn't work, and I have to say, it's not the technique. It's, I'm sorry, if you can't get around physics. Like if you don't go balls to the walls and avoid and all that, there's only so much techniques you're going to do if your attacker is 250 pounds, you know? Um, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Like getting people to realize the reality. Uh, now, of course, a hundred pound girl can fight off a 250 uh, pound guy if they know what they're doing. But I'll always say you need to train a lot more than the guy who's 180 pounds because you need to compensate for that. And uh, when you really challenge people um, like that, I find they, they pull back because, you know, unfortunately, the people, some people have gotten used to that weekend warrior seminar type thing. Yeah. Like, I know yeah. how to defend myself. I'm like, no, you got to keep doing this for 5, 10, 20 years. Uh, Definitely, mate. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you, exactly. Because if you, if you don't, you know, the, the old concept, if you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. And, um, and you know what, to me, what was interesting, and it's interesting you said you're independent because... I'm the same now, and and that was as a, as a result of Nia because I remember when we did that course, um, and Nia, you know, when when he was issuing the certificates and stuff, and he and he spoke very nicely, very highly of myself, and I and I've always appreciated that because it, it kind of it, it gave me that sense of of um, understanding that you know what, yeah, we are we're up there, we're up there with with the big names, you know, all the so-called big names through the marketing. And um, so when I came back to Australia, mate, on the way back, I decided to, um, to, to, to be independent, but with the link with Nier and, as I said, with the, with the really the good people and the good network of people that, you know, were like-minded professionals. And that's what I wanted to do was link with like-minded professionals like you got yourself and, you know, other guys that have you, – you've, you've served, you understand reality, you understand the real world, and um, it's not into all the BS. So – when I came back to Australia, mate, consequently, I'd actually already had enrolled in a. It was a weekend, a weekend seminar with a uh, a very prominent, highly ranked grandmaster of a Krav Maga system, which I won't name. Mm-hmm. Um, and mate, I went to do this weekend seminar, and I remember I'd, I was only there for about three hours on the first day, and I thought, this is bullshit. This is just total crap what this person's teaching these people. And there would have been about 70 in the class that day in the seminar. Mm. And I remember this young young girl, she would have been about 15, and she put her hand up she asked a question. Now, she was up against this big guy, and she said, oh, about this technique. And he said, oh, and the response was, this will work for everybody. Mm-hmm. No matter your size or your or, or your sex, it'll work for everybody. And, and basically that guy lost me there and then. Because I thought to myself, if you're not teaching these people to to adjust and, and compensate for this and, and and other options, well, it's 
pretty sad. And all you're doing is, again, you're training people to die. And I looked at the actual so-called grand master of this system, of this crab style, and he looked very tired. He looked like he'd done a world tour. He looked very tired. And, and to me, it was just cash. And it was because it was all kakling, kakling. It was all about the money mm. and not, not so much about imparting knowledge and skills. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I'd only just come from LA, mate, about a week before training with Nia and, and everybody there. And I looked at this person. I thought to myself, you know what? This is just – and that that planted a seed for me. So our motto with Street Edge Crab McGarren International is we train for the real world, not the bullshit world. Yeah, because, I should just throw in there that's your, your crab McGarren organization. Yeah, 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 mate, yeah. And, and as I said, although I'm independent, I'm still linked with, you know, with, with very, very um, – very, very high-ranking and very proficient professionals, mate. As I said, you know, um, and I'm always grateful, and I'm always, I always represent Nia. Um, and as I said, uh, Itegul is is the same. Mm-hmm. Two very, very, you know, highly regarded people for me. And um, and after that 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 seminar, mate, you know, I basically did a few more hours, and I thought to myself. I've got to leave. I can't stay here. And on that seminar was a, a colleague of mine that had served in Afghanistan with me, and we both looked at each other and we thought, this is just crap. This is just you're training people for for, for nothing at all. It, it's, you're not training them for self-preservation. You're not training them to protect themselves. You're training them to, to literally die. Yeah. Um, so I excused myself from that seminar and I, I said to him, you know, I don't want to refund, um, you know, um, full, full credit to, to everybody. I said, but I'm sorry, I'm leaving because this is not for me. Yeah, and no, I've, heard, I've heard that a few times after people have been with Nier yeah. with other organizations. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I excused myself and just said, look, you know, I, I can't do this. They offered me a 10-visit pass, a 10-visit training card for free. I mm-hmm. said, look, no thanks. And then they asked me, oh, you know, is this your first time to Crab McGarra? I said, look, I've just – I told them, I said, I've just finished doing an instructor program in the, in the US with, with Nia, the man. And they said, who? I said, there you go. I said, maybe you should go and check him out and have a look at the difference between what he's teaching and this shit that this bloke's teaching. Because okay. what you're getting taught from your so-called grandmaster is just shit. Yeah. And uh, although it's the funny thing, fair, I'll just say that yeah. in, in the general Kramaga world, like the average student knows extremely little about the lineages, the history, the other organizations. Yeah. And I've caught a few schools with like kind of, you know with their pants down as I, they don't anyone other than maybe Imi they have no clue. And yeah, you know, it's yeah. my organization, and don't talk to anyone else. You know, so it's like yeah, exactly. Everybody, yeah, everybody's yeah, exactly, mate. And um, and and you know what, mate? It it just to me that was just a um, I, I guess that was the catalyst for me with everything in relation to Krav Maga, um, mm-hmm. and that really set about my journey to um, to do what we're doing now, mate. And you know, and as I say, no disrespect to anybody else. They're training for their reasons. Um, as I said, over the last 20 years, I've had opportunities to train for a lot of people, a lot of prominent people, a lot of people from Israel, a lot of people from overseas. Um, and, and, and I'll always be you know, respectful to them, but at the same time, it doesn't mean I have to agree with what they're teaching because my, my mission is to, to train people to be able to survive, not to, not to get to the next rank or not to – there's nothing wrong with rank. Don't get me wrong. Our, our rank – Testing is very, very extreme hard. Like you're saying before, mate, a lot of people, um, they don't like the way I, I, I test because we, we do it. You know, it's very, very harsh. However, reality is very harsh and, and violence is very harsh and um, and that's what I try to get my guys to understand. So, and um, yeah, so that that's kind of pretty much where, where my journey's gone, mate. 
Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, I, I will like to touch on the ninjutsu thing in a bit, but before that, sure. I think because um, we were talking about ranking, there's that whole debate in the Krav Maga world about ranking, whether you should have it or not. What are what are your thoughts on that? Mate, up until about two years ago, um, to me, um, rank wasn't important. What was important was was the um, and I go back to the you know the, the physical preparation, the mental preparation, the tactical preparation. To me, the rank testing was the end result was your competition or, or your test is that day on the street, that day in your home when somebody breaks in, that day when you're confronted with violence. To me, that was your that was your test. And what we're doing is preparing you as best as we can to get to that point, um, so that it's not. Um, you're not, you're not freezing. You're just going to react nat- naturally. Um, but over the years, a lot of people, obviously, I guess through other organisations, people come to me and say, hey, Paul, you know, I want to train for you. Um, what's your rank system? And when I've told them we don't have a rank system, it's kind of been counterproductive because, oh, well, I want to train and get rank. Um, so I've kind of resisted it for a long time. But... <laughs> I started to change my, my mind a little bit and think to myself, well, I don't want to make it the most essential part of our, our curriculum, but at the same time, I believe in giving people um, credit and rewarding for, for their hard work. Mm-hmm. And I guess as humans, mate, everybody likes to have uh, acknowledgement. Yeah. Here's your goal. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I totally get that. I know. For me, it's uh, I think ranking's a necessity, and the reason why is humans. We are you know, the human condition is what I find is as, you know, as you talked about the reality of violence is as instructors, we have to actually manage their expectations of their ability to deal with violence. And while a rank is just a milestone, it's not necessarily a a recognition of skill per se, because you can get wild variation in uh, skill at any level. Um, It still kind of lets that person know, like if I hold someone back and keep them at white belt for three, four years, I'm trying to tell them something like you need to avoid violence at all costs versus someone who can progress. It's okay. Now you're making progress. You know where you're at. You kind of have an understanding of what you can and cannot do. Hopefully, um, I, of course, business-wise, this is not great, but I'm not going to yeah. sell out because, you know, I, I've had people come, and, you know, I had a situation many years ago. I, I respect this head of an organization too. I respect him as a person immensely, not a fan of how he runs things per se. And uh, I met a bunch of individuals through one of his seminars. And then what had happened is that locally, it turned out that Vancouver was the headquarters in Canada for um, Moni Isaac's organization. (laughs) And then once everyone realized uh, Moni Isaac was a fraud and that whole thing fell apart and these other individuals had met me through this other uh, organization, they all came to me being the local, you know, hey, I want to get certified. I want to be ranked. I'm like, that's cool. It's going to take you a year because I need you to get up to date in the way I'm doing things. And I need to make sure you can mimic what I'm doing. If you just want a weekend certificate, I have zero guarantees that you're not just going to go right back to doing things the way you, you were not. And of course, what do you think all these people told me? Yep. They're like, I'm no, I'm not doing that. I already hold ranks and all this. And it's like, 
okay, but if you want to do what I'm doing, you got to teach what I'm doing. You know? That's it, Mike. That's and exactly People right. don't ever want to do that. I would never go to an organization, even another crowd in my organization, and demand a rank or an instructor thing. I'm going to go through what they want. You know, whether I teach that down the road is up to me, but I'm still going to do their thing because that's the way, you know, I think it needs to be. But most people are not interested in doing the work, I think. Uh, Jonathan, you're 100% there, mate, and and that's one of the reasons. What you just said, mate, I I find that, and it's all because ego. Ego gets caught up, and uh, unfortunately, ego will get people killed too. And and, uh, I have no problems at all, mate. If I want to start a new training, if I want to start training somewhere, um, in a new, in a different system, the cross train, you know, I have no problems whatsoever, mate. I've gone back and putting a white belt on or something like that, or gone back from zero. You know, if if you don't have that mindset, then you know, and, and I tell my my students all the time to always remain humble. You know, yeah. stay safe, train often, and always remain humble. And the most important thing to me is to remain humble all the time because, you know, if you if you don't remain humble. Um, and I was humble back in 1985, mate, when I had the, the literally, you know, when I was when I was bashed severely. Because up until that point, after having done karate for, you know, just under seven years and, you know, having two black belts and two different karate systems, I thought, oh, well, I must be okay. I must know what I'm doing. But I, I learned real fast that night, mate, that by not scanning, by not moving um, uh, and uh, that basically you, you get uh, – you get uh, – you're humble and – Attitude knocked out of you if, you if you're not humble, mate. You know, so from that night, I'd, be, I, I'd learned to become humble very, very quickly and never assume, never never think to yourself, you know, you're better than anybody or never expect that, you know, because you've got a rank. I tell my students all the time, just because you've got rank doesn't mean you're going to survive. What's going to allow you to survive is your mindset. And, and that's what's going to allow you to survive because if you have that will to survive, then you, then you can survive. Yeah. Um, you know, and so... One of the one of the things we do too, mate, for ranking is I might have designated I might only have two designated rank um, testing per year. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, mate, I've gone through a whole year without actually doing any rank testing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what I do, mate, my, my the way I do it is this: if I say, right, we're going to have a, a rank testing on this particular on this particular date, people are preparing for it. So their their mindset is that they're preparing for it. Mm-hmm. Where what I do, mate, is I actually will. I will smash my students in, you know, through the training, through the through the physical side and the, and the, the mental side, and and I will go through a period of time, maybe three, four, five months, where the training is very, very physically demanding. And for those that do exceptionally well, at the end of the class one night, I might call them out and just present them with their rank, yeah, when they least expect it, yeah. And That's and to me, here, yeah. Yeah, and to me, mate, that is a much more rewarding experience for both myself and for them because they, they, they're not aware of it. They're not expecting it. They go there with no pre, preconception ideas. They have no they have no um, pre-expectations, mate, that they're going to go there that night do a rank testing. They just go there as it, it's, a, it's just another class. I'm going to go and train. I'm going to give it 100%. I'm going to do as hard as I can. Yeah. and learn as much as I can. And mate, to me, I get more satisfaction from rank testing doing it that way. Yeah, that's kind of like a, the standard sort of jiu-jitsu model as well, like Brazilian jiu-jitsu. With their yeah, yeah. Most schools will just, hey, here's your next rank and you're not expecting it at all. And, and that's how we do it in the, in the, in the Bujinkan world too, mate. That's how we do our ranking that way too. Yeah. it's. I think there's merit to both, depending, like, because I do actual, like, tests and I schedule. Yeah. 
what I will tell people is if you ask me to do your test or you tell me you're ready to do your test, I'm not letting you do your test. Yeah. <laughs> I'm putting you back. You got to, you know, I'll ask you when I feel you're ready. And it, it, it's not, that aspect is not sort of set in stone. Like I do have my minimums, but yes. let's say someone comes with an immense martial arts background. I'm just going to, you know, run them through our curriculum enough to do the test so they're aware of it. And, you know, yeah. I usually will cut their hours requirements versus someone with zero skill and they're not very physical. They're going for much longer, right? Yeah, yeah of course. And, yeah, definitely, mate. Definitely. Uh, I, with the lower ranks, I tend to, uh, it's a lot less time. But once it gets, once they get to sort of the yellow orange belt, it's like I just wait because that's where they you know, understand the fundamentals, but they really need to put the time in to develop the skills. And uh, for me, I separated the curriculum, like our white belt is the basics, you know, punching, kicking, moving, and more importantly, thinking, I push uh, critical thinking a lot. And then yes. once they move up into the novice ranks, we start actually looking at a lot of what near taught, for example, uh, a lot of the basic like resting judo, kickboxing, boxing to, to increase their combatives and expanding on knife stuff. And then once yep. they get the green belt, I separated it up there into the professional application. Right. In most Western countries, uh, you're not using a gun for self-defense. So yeah. for me, I separated for, you know, I'm in Canada, so I have to be careful legally a little bit. Um, that's where I was like, oh, you want to learn all the cool stuff you saw on YouTube? Now you're ready for it. Right. Now that I know you can yeah. punch, you can think you know to run, you know what you're capable of. Now we can start. Because I, I, I saw a video the other day, actually. It's obviously this guy knew how to do a firearms disarm because he went for it as someone had a gun in his face. And he missed. And he was very lucky that he, his reaction after missing the disarm was just to turn around and slowly walk off. And he's lucky that the guy holding the gun was bluffing. It was more of an intimidation factor. And okay. I use that as an example of if you screw up that disarm, you learned in a weekend and you don't know what to do next, yep. you're screwed. Well, you're, you're dead, mate. Yeah. So I like to build, really build people up because uh, otherwise I find ten, people tend to be a bit delusional about what they can and cannot do. And uh, yeah. I'm quite, quite happy with the results I've been getting. Um, like some of my up higher belts, I only have so far up to green belts because I'm that strict as well with ranking. But I'm, yeah. I'm, the ones that have stuck around, I'm seeing the reactions. Like I can't sneak up on them anymore. And I'm like, yeah. oh, this is yeah. awesome. Great. I'm getting exactly what I, I want to develop in people. Um, so it's, it's interesting, like on the note of, of that, because, you know, I have few instructors like Nir, for example, and to meet Himmelstein, if you know who he is, they're like, no yeah, ranks, yeah. You know, no ranks. No rank, yeah. I'm yeah. like, yeah, I don't know about that. Because I find, um, that aside from the human psychology, is the Israelis forget this, is a lot of the guys they train in the military and, and uh, police, they're what I would consider the top 10 or 15% of physically capable human beings. Yes. Um, I can attest to that because though my students may think I'm an athlete, I am not an athlete. I, I, I do what I do because I have to, right? I have to lead by example and be able to keep up to the best of my abilities. But I was never the athletic kid, you know, pick last in gym. And for me, the military experience was extremely difficult physically, right? Yeah. So yep. I find uh, is that you get these guys who are themselves elite athletes and 
mentally strong individuals and they're used to dealing with mentally strong individuals who are elite athletes. And it doesn't, I have found across organizations, it doesn't always translate very well into the civilian world. And they, I think the Israelis haven't really figured out how to make that transition very well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because when all of a sudden you're dealing with, like, I'm not like, I will have certain, I'm not going to lower my standards because people can't do what I'm teaching. I'll just say, maybe go hire a personal trainer first and come back, which that doesn't happen very often, but it's realizing that I'm not working with the best of the best and I need the time to develop them to the point where now they can do um, yes. You know, I think and an example was one of the organizations I'm pretty close with right now is the IKF. You know, I, I mentioned to me, uh, I was actually supposed to go to Israel, but then COVID happened. Uh, for yeah. yeah. And I went down there with three of my students, uh, uh, all orange belts at the time. And there was us and then this, uh, a school there. And as far as I could tell, and no, no disrespect to the big students of the instructor who hosted, because he's a wonderful person and he's very good himself. But my, I think my students were at just a much higher level um, than what was there because I'm like pushing them and holding them back and driving them. And, and really it's working on that mental and, and aspect uh, and uh, like the conceptual aspect because they really understood and they picked it up quick and they weren't confused. Cause you know, when you go from one system to another, it's a little bit, a uh, little different. So it, it can be tricky. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting you said that Jonathan, because that's something too, that I like, like you said, I, and maybe for people like yourself and myself and, and those that have served in, you know, either military um, or, or policing or both, whatever you, you have this kind of, level of expectation with your students that and that you want them to be at because you know that you want to get the best from them. You want to give them the very best that you can because you want them to be as good as they possibly can be, no matter what their backgrounds are. Yeah. Um, and, and for me, that's what I try to really emphasize with my students is, and I tell them, I, I don't care if you've been in the military. I don't care if you've been in the police. I don't care if you've had my background. But what I want to do is give everything I possibly can to give you every bit of advantage, mate, when violence comes knocking on your door. Yeah. And be it in your home, be it on a, on a trip overseas, be it, um, you know, you can be anywhere um, to prepare them for when when it happens. So, you know, I, I do. I, I, I make no apologies to my students and I say to them all the time, I'm doing this. You may not understand why I'm doing it, so ask me why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I'm doing it because I care about you. I do it because you are paying for a service and I want to give you the very highest level of service that I possibly can. Um, and at the same time, I want to build warriors. I, 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 I want to build people to take them to the highest level they possibly can whilst also ensuring that they remain humble. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and I've noticed that, Quite often, I'll get new students that come and join. They've, they've maybe trained with one of the other big name brands of Krav Maga, and and just one example, I had a lady just start with me about three weeks ago, and she trained for about eight months at another Krav Maga organisation, and on her very first night, one of the you know, and this happens a lot. And she as she left, she said to me, she said, Paul, I learnt more in an hour and fifteen minutes with you tonight than what I did in eight months with that other guy. Yeah, that's common. And, and, 
it, yeah. it, it is, mate. Yeah. And, and, and I said to her, I said, well, look, you know, that's not being, you know, that's not kind of slagging or slandering the other guy. But, and I said, so ex- explain to me, you know, in, in what do you mean? And she even said to me the basic contact of scanning. She said, I'd never been taught to scan before. Yeah, and Which, I think that's that, actually quite shocking because that's to me it's pretty standard in Krav Maga. It is. It, it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. But again, the number of people and and see, Jonathan, for me, the concept of scanning, and we see it in other systems. People turn their head left and right, but that's not scanning to me. Yeah. That's just going through the motions. Mm-hmm. So, so what I will do sometimes in my classes, I never introduce live weapons into the class. But what I will do is I may nominate somebody to stand off to the side of the class or I'll stand off to the side of the class and I'll actually hold a live, a live blade in my, I'll take, you know, a live blade and I'll just stand there and hold it yeah, and see how long it takes for my students to actually pick up the fact that I've got a blade and call it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good idea. I, maybe I should take that as well. Um, something I do often when, when students are sparring. It's the same, same methodology of firearms. You know, yeah. when, you, when you're training firearms, don't just turn left and right. You, you need to scan properly. You need to be moving and scanning and checking your surroundings. So I, I do that. And this young lady said to me, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd never been taught that. I'd never been taught to, to scan like that. I'd never been taught to scan in general. Yeah. And, please, and she just said to me, just everything else that we did tonight, all the other stuff, I've never done that before. Yeah. And I said to her, I said, well, you know, th- this is this – is, this is, standard for what we do this is just this is just part of how we train so you know i get that a lot mate where people come from other systems and um another lady she came to me last year and she said she'd trained with one of the big brands and and she was basically sparring it was just because we we you know we 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 have contact mate you know and she said i've never had contact it's always been pulling punches i said what you've really been trained to do is just you know if you get attacked on the street you've been trained to pull punches and that's it yeah. yeah, one thing I do with scanning is when, when students are sparring, uh, I'll often have an, like a random person just attacking. Yeah, yeah. I can tell who's, well, usually it's the higher ranks because they've learned, is the ones who start circling away while both dealing with their, indivi- their sparring partner and keeping the other permanent away tells me they're the ones doing the scanning. You know, yeah, yeah. Moving appropriately. Obviously, lower ranks don't because they need to get their head around sparring first. Um, yeah. But uh, I can tell when the people, like, they finally get it. They don't just wait for the person to attack. You know, even though my instruction was, yeah, you might get attacked sometime, deal with it. What I really want to see them do is avoid it completely. And usually... Yeah. You know, when they get up the ranks, they start doing that. You'll see them throw a kick and then move around and get the sparring partner again. And uh, and then it's, it's very satisfying as an instructor to see when they finally, because I can tell them, don't just do what I'm telling you to do. Like use your brain. Yeah. But that's not yeah. everyone's gonna pick uh, pick that up. And then when it actually translates, it's, it's very satisfying for sure. Hundred mate. Yeah, and one of the other things we do too, mate, which we really emphasise, which I don't see very often, that's um, self-assessment. You know, after after the actual um, after the actual conflict, and, and you know, I, I train my guys all the time. I say to them, there's three parts of this. There's there's the, the before, during, and after the attack. Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand how to to deal with it afterwards, you, you mm-hmm. if you if you're not doing self-assessments, you can bleed out very quickly. And yeah. um, you know, and so I, I teach them. To, to prepare themselves psychologically after the attack, how to speak to emergency services, what to say under stress, you know, how to do a self-assessment at the same time, you know, where to look for. So 
the tactical medicine side of things um, comes into our, our training quite a lot too. It's very, it's it's very heavily, um, um, uh, it's it's a huge part of our training, mate. Because I want my guys to understand that that you know it's not like in in the gym or in the in the dojo where you're just gonna you do that and then it's all good. Um, I want them to know how to check themselves out, how to check their their friend or their family member out to see if they're bleeding out. Um, and especially low light conditions. So we do a lot of training, mate, um, in low light conditions. I use a lot of sound. A lot of, I use a lot of distractions. Mm-hmm. Um, I've even in the past filled the room full of smoke and mm-hmm. uh, with a smoke machine, you know, and then put them through, you know, some pretty hard stuff just to get them prepared for as many possibilities that they could encounter. Yeah. And uh, and I say to my guys all the time, we're not. Tra- I'm not training you just for downtown. Down, downtown Brisbane. I'm training you. You could be on a on a Kentucky tour overseas. You could be on a trip overseas to to the UK. You could be in the states. You could be in South America. And a lot of my students who have who have trained with me over the years have been to these places. And um, and I say to them, you know, it's I'm not teaching just for for a violent attack. I'm talking about terrorism. I'm talking about mm-hmm. you know any type of situation you might find yourself in where you need to protect yourself and your loved ones, be it either physical or even just being aware situationally, so we, we it's a it's a really holistic approach, mate. To to um to the way I teach it, mate. And yeah, I guess certainly you know, I think it's yeah, like, yeah. Like but, I, but unfortunately, sorry, mate. No, oh, yeah, no. I just saying because I'm in Canada. You know, in we're in Vancouver. It's very safe here. Yeah, we notorious uh, downtown east side downtown with the drug addicts and stuff. But I tell people all the time, like if you think this city is dangerous, you're out of your mind. Like if I'm saying, you know, if, how I deal with the situation here yeah. is a little bit different than how I'm going to deal with the situation for for whatever reason, I might find myself say in the Republic of Congo. It's going to be radically. Yeah radically different like, like, mate. the level of yeah. violence and willingness to do violence is going to have to go up in a lot of other places in the world definitely mate and, and and if you don't prepare your students for that mindset then then if they're ever in that situation they they don't understand it so that's why i constantly say to my guys you, you know i'm training you right now here in brisbane but you could be anywhere in the world and I talk about the different levels of threats in different countries and, you know, and, and what are the potential threats in, in, in different countries that they might encounter. But I say to them, you need to be able to go to any place in the world and maintain that mindset of survival. Because yeah. if you don't, if you're only training for downtown Brisbane, and Brisbane where I live, mate, is relatively safe too. You know, we, we, this is, you know, we have a fair bit of shit every now and then, but it's generally a safe place compared to some other countries in the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, but... But a lot of my students, you know, prior to COVID, mate, they, they would travel, um, you know, with work or, or you know, and um, for holidays and stuff. And I'd say to them, if you go on an overseas trip on a holiday with the mindset that you're just going for a great time, that's good. But you've got to also have the mindset that shit can happen anytime and you need to prepare for that. So, yeah, for sure. you know, so we, we, we think that way, mate. And quite a lot of times I'll, I'll uh, incorporate a lot of other stuff into our training. Um, you, you know, it's not just criminal but also the tourism side of things and i just tap into my background all the time mm-hmm. yeah. and and share as much as i can with them mate yeah 
Yeah. I also like to share like stories from other people. Um, Definitely. Cause you know, my, my military experience is what I had. And it was, uh, I obviously learned a lot, but I wasn't involved in any war or anything at the time. So I have to draw yeah. from my instructor's stories and, and people like your stories. So to reinforce um, things often, like, you know, speaking of um, the scanning you were talking about, I often use this story. It's an anecdotal. One of my old, uh, ex-girlfriends was telling me about how her dad's friend was learning to drive and he you know a shoulder check where you look over your shoulder before you uh, change the lanes and and she had asked him like do you know what you're doing because she could see he might not have been the best driver and he's like yeah you just look you look left look right and then you go she's like but what are you doing he's like i don't know that's what the driving school told me just look left look right so he's yeah. actually doing anything. No. So if people don't know, hey, you actually, you can't just turn your head. You have to activate your eyes, connect it to your brain, make a decision, assess. You know, uh, you hear these stories completely unrelated to uh, self-defense and then you realize that we're all human and it's all the same at the end of the day. 100%, 100% mate, yeah. And, and it's, like I said, mate, there's a big difference between moving your head from left to right to actually moving your head left to right and scanning and then picking up things too. And, um, and that's what I see yeah. quite often uh, in the Krav Maga world and I guess in the martial arts world in general, mate. People do, they, they, they're getting trained to turn their head left and right, but what are they actually picking up? What are they actually, what are they actually picking up when they turn their head left and right? Yeah. Um, you know, and I guess, you know, again, look, I, I, I always say, mate, that, that I'm very blessed that I've had the journey in my life that I have. And, um, I'm very humble with my journey too, because, but it's a, it's kind of, it's all come to a point where, you know, all my experiences, all my skills, all my, everything I've done in my life is kind of come to this point now where, where I, I love teaching because I can impart knowledge. I can impart, you know, all this stuff that I've got to people and I can see their, 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 their development, how they, they're empowered, how the, their confidence levels and, and just their, just their, just, the way they are as human beings, it, you know, just it's so nice to see. But like you said about sharing other people's experiences, I also tap into my students. I've got, you know, I've got serving police officers. I've got some, you know, military guys. I've got some contractors. I've got nurses. I've got, you know, I had an F um, uh, 747 pilot. You know, like anybody at all that that trains with me, I will tap into them and I'll ask them, okay, about this, or they might share their stories and stuff. Even last night at our class last night, you know, I've got one of my students who's been with me for about 10 years. Um, he was a student before he joined the police. He's been a student since he's been the police. And, um, and you know, I, I quite often when I'll teach, I'll say, look, mate, you know, do you want to share anything? Do you want to add anything? Or we all, he'll, I'll get him to talk about some of the things that he's encountered because I don't want my students just to think, oh, it's all about Paul Johnson. It's about Paul Johnson. It's not just about me. I say to them, this is not about me. This is about you guys. And, and, and I will get other people to, to share their experience and their knowledge and stuff like that. And I think holistically, as a, as a, as a team, that's really beneficial, mate. You know, and it, it, it lets everybody be empowered. It lets everybody grow and learn from each other. Yeah. Um, well, it's actually very good because like I've been a bunch of different seminars with different people and I always like the instructors that um, have more time of them talking than having the students drilling. It's like, oh, this is about you more, I think, because yes. how do you yes. know you've taught them anything? Because if 50% or more is them just demonstrating other than maybe an introduction, like here's where I'm coming from, all this yeah. stuff. 
Um, Definitely. It, it, I've seen that a lot. And then versus it, regardless of the organization, other ones who, you know, they talk and then they have you do and then they talk and then it's like 70 plus percent of the students doing, right? Because it's yeah. developing their skills. So it's, I think that's extremely important. It's I think not that's about the distractor. No, 100%, mate. And, and you know, like, there's, there's a time and a place, you know, sometimes, um, as you said, some people, mate, they just want to sit there and talk about themselves and, you know, how good they are or how good they think they are and stuff. For me, it's about teaching and getting the students to start training. I'll, I will tap into my background when I need to, to emphasise a point or to share an experience and say to them, this is why we're doing this. And um, just for example, mate, last night we were doing uh, stick work, but they're actually laying on the ground. They're doing it from, from the ground and they're getting up off the ground using sticks instead of just being up on their feet. Mm. And, um, and, and I said to him, I said, this comes from an experience that I had when I was um, with the police. I was up in the um, Solomon Islands. I was involved in a mob attack. Um, you know, we, we were basically overnumbered. We got knocked to the ground. As I was getting up off the ground, I've, I've got to use my baton from the actual ground, not from a kneeling position, but actually as I'm pulling myself up off the ground, I'm actually swinging, you know, to, to towards legs and knees and stuff like that. So everything I, you know, whenever I teach something, I'll say to them, the reason we're actually doing this is for this particular reason. And then I'll separate and say, okay, you know, this is from a police perspective or military perspective, but this is for Joe Citizen you know, and then I'll tap it into it and say, right, this is a scenario you could find yourself in where you may have to do that. Because most people, when they do stick work, it's all standing up. Yeah. Um, you know, so we, we, again, mate, everything that, that we train in, I do it from a, a standing, a kneeling, a sitting, and a, and, a, and a ground. And when I talk about ground, I'm not talking about grappling, I'm talking about from the ground. Yeah. You know, um, so that's kind of, so that's how I, Again, when I talk to my students, if I'm talking, I'll actually just mention, right, this is why we're doing it. This is an example. And then we just train, mate. And I think that's the thing I liked about Nier when we did the uh, instructor program for Nier, mate. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he gave a brief dis- um, introduction about himself. And then what was the rest of the the rest of this, um, the, the instructor's course, mate, was just training. Yeah, drilling, a lot of drilling. Drilling, drilling, yeah. It was, it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I've seen that. Like I've been in, like if you actually have an instructor running it similar to the level of uh, like Israel, I'll find in North America at least, I don't know what it's like over there, but uh, people are like, oh my God, like this is hard. Like example, I was at, I've been to a few and I see, like for me, it's like once I make that mental shift, yeah, it's just like being in the army, no problem. And then I just see everyone else is struggling, trying to keep up with the intensity and just, you know, four to eight hours nonstop training, just go, right? And and, and to me, if your school isn't preparing you for that already, it's like, I don't know if you're doing a good enough job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not quite a bit where the students are just, they mentally can't handle it. Right? And I think that's the part you said, mentally, Um you, you can be you can be extremely fit. You can be fit as, but if you don't have the mental capacity, if you don't have the mental, you know, the mindset, mate, you, you're gonna you're gonna finish up real quick. For sure. Now, I do want to talk about your ninja background because okay. <laughs> it's a very obscure thing nowadays for someone to be at such a high level in a in a martial art that's I would say is almost extinct in many ways. Oh, look, yeah. It's um, <laughs> the, yeah, no problems at all, mate. I um, look, I, I started um, 
in the Bujin Khan, mm-hmm. um, and that's probably the most you know the most recognised um, ninjutsu, so to speak, organisation in the world. It's not actually. Um, so yeah, I started in uh, in nineteen what did I start nineteen eighty nine. Mm-hmm. It was actually my birthday. Actually, I started my first class on my birthday in December nineteen eighty nine, and um, and back in those days, mate, you had to actually write to the teacher, mm-hmm. to your sensei, and actually ask permission to come and train. So I was living in North North Australia, Northern Australia. I was up there with the military at the time, and I was getting a uh, getting a posting down to Sydney, and um, a transfer down to Sydney. And I, I wrote to to this gentleman. Many, many times back then, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have, um, you know, so um, I wrote to him and, and after about, you know, eight months, I received a letter saying that I was, I was invited to attend his dojo and and um, that's basically where I started, mate. So I started um, training in um, in the Bujinkan back in, yeah, December 89. And, um, yeah, so I just, um, I was in uh, Japan in November last year. I took a group of my students to Japan and, um we celebrated my 30th, um, 30th year of uh, involvement in the Bujinkan. So, nice. uh, well, congratulations. Yeah, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Yeah. No, I just, so, uh, yeah. like, I'm sure there's lots of, like, just like Krav, lots of misconceptions about uh, what yeah. it is you guys yeah. do. Like, are you guys doing sword play or like smoke bomb stuff? Like, what's, <laughs> what are you learning? Look, um, Mate, it's it's quite interesting because the whole ninjutsu thing, obviously, that's that's you know stemmed from the movies and from the media and stuff like that. But um, look, in the Bujinkan, there's nine schools in the in the organisation that I'm in, and that's run by our Grandmaster Masaki Hatsumi, yeah. and um, and there's nine nine schools, and and three of those are, are traditional uh, ninja or ninjutsu schools. The other six are you know samurai jujitsu type skills. So I always say to people, think of doing, you think of this, you're actually learning nine different martial arts under the one organization. So the journey is, takes you forever, mate. It, it's a long journey. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, in relation to your question, mate, we, um, we do training in a lot of different weapon systems. We, you know, everything from, um, you know, from a tanto, from a, from a knife to sword to, to pole work to, to naginata to, um, to chain to, to rope. Mate, there's probably about – I actually was asked this um, recently – and I, I would say that in my time in the in the Bujinkan, I've probably trained in twenty about twenty three, twenty four different weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then in taking that back, um, out of that say twenty three, twenty four, I've what I've done is tried to become proficient in about a dozen of those. Mm-hmm. The others I know and I can teach, but as far as proficiency goes, uh, about ten to twelve that I've I've actually tried to to become very proficient at. Well, I mean, that's still pretty good. Usually people yeah. are one or none or something, you know? Yeah. 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 It's, um, and, and look, mate, the, the ninjutsu sort of things or the Bujinkan sort of things, there's a really great crossover between that and the Krav. So, um, I would say 80% of my students do both and they really enjoy the, the overlap. There's so much overlap between them both. And, um, and you know, there, there's a lot of, Especially, I guess, the footwork, and that's the big thing that a lot of my students from Crab tell me that do ninjutsu, is their footwork is so much smoother. Mm-hmm. Um, they can move very, very well because of their ninjutsu training. Um, yeah. But, 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 mate, yeah, it's look, it's a, it's a, it all comes down to one thing. Like I said, everybody, it all comes down to the instructor. Mm-hmm. 
you know, because, you know, you can have, you can have 10 different people that have spent 30 years in the Bujinkan. They've been to Japan many times, but it all comes down to the way they interpret it, the way they teach it, their own background, their experiences. And I go back to a conversation I had with my, um, with my grandmaster several years ago. And, uh, he said to me, he said, Paul, keep training your students for your environment. Mm-hmm. And he, he knows my environment, what my environment is. And he said, so keep training your students for your environment. So hence, um, I teach ninjutsu very similar to the way I teach Krav in relation to making sure my students are physically prepared, mentally prepared, tactically prepared, and having them met the medical training behind them. So, and also fighting off them kangaroos, right? <laughs> mate, and fighting off kangaroos, and yeah, if need be, mate, yeah. But look, it's 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 been a um, there's a there's a lot of elements of of ninjutsu that um, there's a misconception, as you said. You know, in 30 years, mate, I've never worn a mask. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've never I've never thrown a smoke bomb. Um, but um, but there's a lot of other aspects of it, which is absolutely fascinating. And uh, and I've I've embraced it. My students embrace it, and it's it's been a great journey, mate. And I'm very thoughtful. Um, I'm very um, thankful and um, grateful that I've had the opportunity to to take that journey in in line with my crab journey at the same time. Yeah. Well, I found say, that um, in the event of the apocalypse, knowing how to use a sword would be very useful. <laughs> uh, knowing how to use yeah a sword. Um, knowing how to use um, a lot of other weapon systems and stuff um, is very, very, very useful, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. So, um, yeah, but look, it's, um, yeah, the ninjutsu side of things, mate, it's, 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 it's really good. And, um, and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, mate. It's, it's an interesting kind of when you go to Japan, you train, um, when you go to the Hombu and you've got people from all around the world that go there, um, you, you look at other people and you think to yourself, okay, they're a particular rank, and you, you kind of get yourself a position where you can gauge where you are in your own training. Um, not, not so much comparing, but gauging your own training. Um, and, and I like to think that like my, my ninjutsu dojo, we, it's called, um, Bujinkan Jisen Dojo. So in Japanese, Jisen means real, means like real, real fighting, real war. Um, so Jason to me is about the whole concept of what I teach my students is we're training for the real world here where you, these schools and this knowledge that you have, it's designed for, for real world. Um, and, and whilst our art might be, you know, 900,000 years old and whilst our, a lot of the techniques are very old techniques, I teach the traditional technique and then what we do is then we embrace that and then we actually incorporate that into a modern application. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, um, like obviously I don't do ninjutsu, but I've been doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu for you know, eight, eight yeah. years now. And, you know, I find not obviously all props to the Gracies, but like when I see them teaching their self-defense systems, I have to like yes. refrain a little bit, you know, because I want to say something I would never disrespect that family, but it's just like, it's not in many ways, it's not real anymore. Their self-defense application, you know? And so when, when I, if I'm teaching grappling for Krav, I'm like, Hey, don't forget, you can get kicked in the face and you can grab and bite and eat all that stuff. And, uh, I try to limit the ground stuff in my Krav application, just get them good enough to be able to defend so that they can face and get up. Cause otherwise you're not really, 
uh, doing good self-defense if you're staying on the ground for, you know, in, unless you're arresting someone, of course. Uh, yeah, of course, mate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's um, yeah. It's look, mate. It's there's um, there's we could talk for a long time in relation to the ninjutsu side of things, but um, but yeah, look, it's um, there's a really good crossover and uh, a crossover from what we do in ninjutsu to what we do in krav, and both cross over each other, and there's a benefit for each. And I think you know, the feedback from my students is they feel that it both complement each other. And it allows them to really, really open their mind up with a lot of their training and their skills and their knowledge. So, um, and the thing is, unfortunately, in the Bujinkan world, mate, there are so many bullshit instructors out there. Mm-hmm. And when I talk about bullshit instructors, I'm talking about they're teaching techniques, mate, which, you know, like you said before with the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know, they're teaching stuff that's just not going to work. And they think it's going to work because they have this cult mentality. Yeah. And I won't go as far as saying that the Bujinkan's a cult because it, 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 I don't believe it is, but there are people in that organisation, like other martial arts organisations, where they think that, you know, everything revolves around around that. Um, as I said, mate, I'm very not open or vocal, but I won't, I won't hold back from my opinions anymore with the Bujinkan because after 30 years... Um, I'm now at the highest rank I could possibly obtain in the Bujinkan. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people in the Bujinkan world that don't particularly like me and they've never met me. Mm-hmm. And that's because purely, you know, professional jealousy, um, the way we train our students, the way my mindset is to training. Um, and I think it's also their own insecurities, mate, because if they really open themselves up and look at themselves in the mirror, they'll realize that a lot of what they're teaching is not going to work, mate. Yeah, I mean, it's that humbling, like, you know, for I take myself an example as a, I'm not an athlete. I am five, six, you know, 160 pounds. If yep. a big enough person wants to get in my face, I have no delusions about the difficulty it's going to be uh, to Definitely. defend myself and, and you know, com- com- communicating that to people. Um, that, you know, it doesn't matter how long I've been training. There's physics, there's, you know, you, like in, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I get these kids, young guys come in, white belts, blue belts, and I never underestimate anyone because some of them, like, I had a guy once who did 10 years of Sambo, but was a white belt of uh, in Jiu-Jitsu, and I just felt it, and I'm like, hmm, you know? and Or even just a young 20-year-old who's super fit and did a bit of wrestling, and all of a sudden... You know, me not being like, I'm not a world champion or anything. And it's like, oh, I got to really try here, you know? And uh, yeah, yeah. it humbles you when you realize that physicality matters and, and the rule set matters. And 100%, my friend. 100%, my friend. And mate, actually tomorrow, believe it or not, I'm actually going to a, um, I'm going to talk to a group of veterans who are involved in a, in a, in a um, BJJ grappling group and um and I'll, I'll actually start my very first class tomorrow in bjj nice. and uh and mate i'm more than happy to put a white belt on and just you know and just be just be just be a student and just go there mate and uh so they've asked me to come and actually talk about my journey in the martial arts and what i've done through my military and my police career and that but at the same time after i do that i'll then put a white belt on mate, jump on the mats with them and and uh and just be a white belt and I'm more than happy to do that, mate. You know, I'm more than happy to do that. And so where fun. some people, yeah, yeah, have fun. And, and where some people have said to me, you know, like, um, but, you know, you, you've got, you know, you've got six black belts and you've got this and you're instructor with this. And I say to them, 
But, you know, at the end of the day, that's, that's nice to have, but it doesn't make you who you are. Mm. The rank doesn't make you who you are. You know, your, your mind and your heart makes you who you are, mate. And, and that's where I think there's so many problems in the martial arts community, the Krav Maga world, the Wujinkan world, where people hide behind their rank. People, they, they think because they're at a particular rank that they've got this force field around them, mate. They've got this kind of what I call a chi blast where, you know, if they get attacked on the street, they're going to be able to, to stop that threat because they've got a rank. They say there's black belts and then there's black belts. And for me, one of, one of my eye opening is I did some, in jiu-jitsu, I did some seminars with like multi-time world champions. Yeah. And you just feel these people. And I'm like, man, if they get a hold of you, you're done. Like, if you have no concept of grappling, even if you've been doing craft for 15 years, if they can get yeah. near you, you're in trouble. And it just was yeah. this eye-opening thing about like, oh, if someone has this skill level, you need to recognize it quickly that yeah. oh, I can't stay here. I got to get out. Well, as a yeah. lot of people will try to, you know, oh, I, I know Krav Maga. I can just guide, uh, you know, stick a finger in their eye. And I'm like, uh, I don't think so. Not with those people. As soon as you go near their face, they're going to be pissed and you're going to get yeah. <laughs> So I'm just saying, mate, yeah. Recognizing it's true. better is important. You've got to, mate. And um, like, you know, in the Bujinkan, one of our schools that we that we train in, mate, there's a lot of grappling. There's a lot of groundwork and grappling stuff and I've been fortunate with that. But um, many, many years ago, one of my students, mate, he, he, he travelled with work and, he went down south. Um, it was actually Melbourne, and uh, he he went to a um, a BJJ school there and asked if he can do some classes while he was down there. And somebody got him into a into a choke on the ground and stuff, and and he just automatically, mate, it was just reaction from his trainer. He turned and started biting on the side of the guy's jaw. <laughs> And then all of a sudden the bloke let go and then the instructor come running over and said, mate, you're, you're an idiot. What are you doing? Up here? But when he explained to him, hey, this, I'm sorry, this is just instinctive for me because I've been trained to do this through my training. Mm. So they basically said to him, oh, your, your instructor's a maniac. Okay, that's <laughs> called me a maniac. And, but I, I said to my student afterwards, did he let go? He said, yeah, he let go. I said, because he wasn't prepared for that. Yeah. Because you've got to, diff- you've got to separate the, the competitive side of things, the sports side of things, to the reality side of things. And oh, you yeah. can cross them over. You can have that crossover no. as long as your mindset is that, well, you know the difference between reality and you know the difference between competitive. Yeah, and, if I had um, an example like that, I have, you know, as I said, I'm not a big guy. Some of my students are way bigger, way stronger, <laughs> way faster than me. And we were, we were working on grappling and this individual uh, got me in a position where it had locked my neck you know, position yep. that I couldn't turn my body, right? It's good. He yep. learned something and he's way stronger. No way I'm getting out of this under the normal rules. So I just grabbed his ear cause that's all I could get and just pulled hard and he let go. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm like, Hey, if you want to play that game, this is a crowd class today. So I'm going to play that game. hundred <laughs> percent, mate. hundred percent. Stuff like that. You kind of know how to do it sometimes. You've got to, mate. And then you've got to also, see, for me too, mate, you've got to also always open your mind to, to anything. And, and, you know, I've been fortunate, mate, over the years, like, you know, I did a seminar with Stephen Seagal a couple mm-hmm. of years ago here in Australia. And people say, oh, you know, Stephen Seagal, this is... 
But unless you actually meet the guy and see what he can do, mm-hmm. there's a lot of misconceptions with him. I, I did a, a, a seminar with um, Anderson Silva, Jose mm-hmm. Piers, you know, all, all these people like Dan Asano. All, I've I've had that that in my in my journey, mate. I've had that opportunity where I've you know I've gone to meet these people. I've gone to train with these people. Even if I could learn one thing from these people, that will that will help me. Subsequently, it's going to help my students. Mm-hmm. It might make me think differently about a particular thing. And, and every person I've had the opportunity to train with um, has been – it's been rewarding. And it's something that I, I'm grateful for because it's, it's continually allowing me to keep my mind training, keep my skills going um, because, unfortunately, there's too many people out there, mate, called master. Yeah. Master this, master that, master, and and I've got colleagues of mine that are called master, and I, I give them full respect. But I don't understand that concept. Where I'm 53 years of age this year, mm-hmm. um, I've been training since I was 11. I'm not a master. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, I've got you know I've got a I've got a number of black belts and in instructor accreditation in various different organisations, and I'm grateful for that. But I'm still a student at the end of the day. I'm still continually trying to learn as much as I can right to the very last minute where I take my breath, mate, I want to still be learning. I don't want to get to that point where I stop and say, well, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm master, master Paul. No, I'm not master at nothing. And um, I want to continue being a student, continue yeah. evolving and keep learning. If I can learn something from you, mate, you learn something from me, that's a bonus for both of us. If I can go and do a seminar with somebody, you know, like, as I said, like Anderson Silver, for example, I went and did a seminar. I was only there for six hours with him, whatever it was. But I walked away with a half a dozen new things. George hmm. um, St. Pierce, listen to him. Uh, Arnie Schwarzenegger, mate, I, I was fortunate to meet him several years ago. And just by hearing him talk, that empowered me. It gave me a different approach to things. So hmm. I always believe, mate, every person you meet, every student you meet, I learn from my students just as much as they learn from me too. Yeah. Well, it's like, uh, on the topic of master, like one thing and for the most part, of course, there's a few guys in the Krav Maga world that are going around calling themselves masters. Um, yeah. In general, it's you, my name's John. Like I get students who come from traditional uh, backgrounds and I'm like, they're like, what do I call you? Sensei, master? I'm like, no, just John. It's fine. John. John. Yeah. John. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just the yeah. person who's teaching you some stuff. <laughs> like I'm not special. Um, That's it. That's you know? it. Yeah. And I'm the same, mate. Yeah, even if I go to learn from Kramag organizations that I'm not the biggest fans of, I'm looking at it from an instructor perspective because maybe I don't like their techniques, but maybe they did a teaching methodology that I really liked. And Definitely. I'll pick something like that up and then and, and adapt and, and modify accordingly. Definitely, mate, yeah. And that's the way you've got to think of it too, mate, because like myself, I'm the same. Just call me Paul. Yeah, you know that's it. it it's it, it, it. Just just call me Paul. Um, when it comes to the to the nin, ninjutsu side of things, from the moment we're actually on the mats or training, my students call me Sensei. Mm-hmm. No problems at all. But yeah. the moment we walk off the mat, they call me Paul, and I say to them, "Do not call me Sensei after class." Yeah, I'm just Paul. You know, that's where it comes down to. Um, and, and they do that more from a from a traditional. Well, yeah, I know, it makes things. sense if like um, that's the organization yeah. the way. That's the way it is. You know, it's just like yeah. how to go to your head. That's what matters, I think. Right? Yeah, exactly, mate. Like uh, my 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 rank in in the Bujikan is Daishihan, so it's like the highest rank I can get. I've said to my students, "Don't you ever call me Daishihan. Mm. Never call me that. Never call me Shihan. Just call me Sensei. That's it. That's that's all. You know. Um, and and with my crab, 
just call me Paul. Yeah. Um, you know, even after class, do not call me sensei, just call me Paul yeah. because that's all I am, mate. But as I said, I've, I've seen a number of times, I've been to seminars and they say, oh, you know, master such and such much. And I think to myself, you know, master bullshit, that's pretty much all you are. It's, yes, it's kind of like, you know, it, it, it really is because if you start believing in your own BS, that's when you, that's when you fail, mate. That's mm, when you, you become complacent then. Yeah. You become complacent. And you can't, you know, I don't want to walk around saying, oh, uh, hi, my name's Master Paul. It's, to me, that's just, that's just ego as far as I'm concerned, mate. Yeah. You know. We're on the same page, I think. Now, yeah. you shift a little bit. Now, you have a police background and you're on the other side of the world. So I'm curious as to what you and maybe those in, in Australia are thinking of what's going on with policing in North America right now. Because one thing I always remind even my students is like, hey, what, what we hear on the news here, if I go to England, it's going to be saying a different thing. If I go to Australia, it's going to be saying a different thing. If I go to yeah. Russia, it's going to be saying a different thing. So I'm actually curious to hear sure. with your background as well as being somewhere else, like what the sure. thoughts are. No worries, mate. Just so, um, first of all, just understand. So I, I served for um, for a decade with the Australian Federal Police. Mm-hmm. Now, our AFP, there's a lot of similarities between your Mounties. There's a lot of similarities between the FBI. Um, we encompass a lot of different things that a lot of these major organisations around the world have, and we do it all in the one organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my time, mate, as a, as a federal agent, I was um, also a, uh, a firearms and defensive tactics instructor um, at the same time. Mate, I've, I've also had the privilege to train about 15, 16 different police organisations around the world um, and obviously be on operations with it. So that's kind of a little bit of my background. Um, now, in relation to the... To, to the US and, and North America, it, to me, it's very sad, mate. Very, very sad to see. Um, uh, and when you start thinking about, you know, closing down police departments, um, that's just, to me, I can't even yeah. understand that concept. It's yeah. just outrageous, mate. And and the way that the people have reacted to the police, look, and without getting into the politics side of things, mate, um, yeah, there are, there are good police or are bad police. There's good, bad everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, in the heat of the moment, that's the big thing for me. When shit hits the fan, in the heat of the moment, and you make a decision, you're going to be judged on that forever. Mm-hmm. And um, if it goes bad. So I think a lot of those things that have happened over in the US, um, some of those have been justified. Some of them have been excessive use of force, most definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But, mate, the way I've seen the public react against the police, it's just disgusting. They should be, you know, should be ashamed yeah. of themselves. And, you know, in the, the I've, I, I'm quite the political guy, I think, as an amateur, I would say. Um, so I, I do keep track of this stuff. And yeah. you notice that the crime rates and shooting rates are spiking. Yes. Uh, in Chicago the other day, they had to pull up, like, Batman style, pull up the drawbridges to stop looters from coming in. Uh, yeah. Seattle... Yeah police chief who was a black woman <laughs> stepped yeah. down after they defund the police. She's just basically said, I can't do this anymore. Like you guys. Yeah, that's fine. And, and you know, you're getting people leaving, you know, it's hard to avoid the politics in American stuff. A lot of people are just leaving the democratic states that are basically doing this and going to states that aren't acting so silly about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, no. it, it is, mate. Like even from here in Australia, uh, you know, I, I'm watching, I'm studying, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to people over there and, and, and watching what's going on, uh, actively observing what's going on. And to me, it's just 
I can't comprehend in any way, shape or form why they're allowing this to happen. It's just, it's, it's just ludicrous. And I, I guess for me, I remember um, a couple of months ago, mate, there was a video that was doing the, the rounds of a, of a police chief in, um, in one, of the, um, one of the small areas there. And he basically said, you know, in our county, we have guns. The people have guns. You know, I, I encourage them to have guns. So if you want to come into their house, well, you can expect them to, um, to shoot you and stuff. This is the police chief. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, like, mate, you got bulls. Like, seriously, you know, that that's that's what we expect from – basically saying if you're a piece of shit and you want to break into somebody's house and, and rob them, yeah. well, you can expect the consequences. And um, and you see this this massive shift, mate, this kind of this mind shift where from, from that to the fact that the, you've got other people wanting to defund the police. It's just, mm-hmm. you know. And well, as you, know, you said, mate – on that, like Sorry. coming from Canada, like I'm licensed to teach our firearm safety course here. And, you know, yes. the topic of firearms and self-defense comes up, you know, obviously. And yeah. the quick answer in that course is always, no, you cannot. Yeah. The real answer is kind of, you can, but yeah. you're going to be dealing with the nightmare of the courts and the police and all this sort Definitely. of thing. There are, I say, if you end up for whatever reason using a firearm in self-defense, it's a coin flip a lot of the time, whether you are going to go to jail or whether you are going to get off on self-defense. And um, and you really don't know, because if I go ask the average Canadian, like, hey, if someone forcibly breaks into your house and you have a gun, can I shoot them? They're going to say, yeah. Most yeah. Canadians who don't know the law, I mean, it's the same in every country. They don't, nobody knows what the hell their own laws are, but um, they'll say, yeah, you can, which to me is like, we're in a common law country except for Quebec. That should be the law, but that's not really yeah. the law here, right? The law is, is usually equal force, which is a very gray area a lot of the time. Uh, yeah. To me, if they use force to enter my house, I have no idea what their intentions are. And they could easily just as easily grab a knife as they would to run out the door. But as you said, they're a piece of shit. They shouldn't be doing that in the first place. And it should be obvious not to do that. Um, But like, I have to tell people, listen, like while there is grounds for using firearms in self-defense, like you you can't, uh, there is an uh, uh, open and concealed carry license here, but you are never going to get it ever. Yeah. Okay. Um, So you can't actually walk around like in the States but you can have firearms here. You can have pistols, rifles. Um, and, you know, people want to know. A lot of people, I just tell people like, hey, it's better to have them because you never know. But if you do use them, you might go to jail. So you have to be very, yes. very careful when using them. I just joke about, hey, but if, if you have them and the zombie apocalypse comes, you're good to go, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. As long as you can justify it, mate. That's, that's at the bottom line. Yeah. And like, cause I know Australia has got some pretty strict firearms laws too. I'm not that up to yeah. what they are, like how are firearms viewed there? Look, um, I guess here, mate, um, Australia looks at the American system, you know, especially like Texas, you know, the mm-hmm. where you know, you can carry, carry firearms and stuff like that here. Um, Prior to Port Arthur, the the Port Arthur massacre, mate, um, back in the in the mid nineties, there was a, um, you know, the, people carried firearms here. You know, obviously not they didn't carry it on themselves, but but firearms were prevalent. You could you could go and buy a firearm, you go shooting, you could, you know, you could go um, 
you know, hunting, recreational, sports shooting, that type of thing. You could ha- you could carry you, you could actually own them. And uh, even back in those days, mate, it was you know you could go to a gun shop and buy a Spaz Twelve. You could go and buy you know like you can buy all sorts of different types of um, you know semi-automatic weapons and some military type ones and you know sporting ones. But after Port Arthur, mate, uh, our government basically shut that right down and um, and and. Over a long period of time, it's started to really, it's it's very restrictive now, mate. You know, you can still, you can still go and become a member of a of a sports shooting organisation. You go through your safety license, you go through all the licensing, and you can still have a firearm, and you can still go out and be a, a you know, part of a shooting club. Um, you can still go out and do. Um, you know, for feral animals and stuff like that. But it's a lot more restricted now, mate. And we really in our society here, you could say it's a it's a non it's a no gun policy or no gun society. But the biggest problem is mate, all the shit bags out there, all the scum out there, mate, they're the ones carrying the firearms, you know. And um and uh and there's there's always there's shootings that happen and stuff like that. So, you know, from a from a police perspective, mate I think it's been counterproductive in many cases. I think what they did, that was probably at that time, Australia had never had such a a huge massacre in that scale. And the Prime Minister at the time, who who actually fortunately had the opportunity to... um, to work with mate and um, and and protect, he um, he made a decision at the time. I think in the best interest of our country, and um, but I think it's a bit of a knee jerk reaction at the mm-hmm. time too. I think they could have done a, a lot differently. Um, yeah, well, it's like I don't know. Do you follow in Canadian politics at all? Nobody usually is, but I might as well ask. No, mate, I still tap into it, mate. I'm I'm very international with my mind. You know, I, I look mm-hmm. at everybody. You know what's happening in the world. So, and I know that he's. You know, you're. Prime Minister is not, you know, probably not the most. Um, <laughs> I'll, liked, save, you know? I'll save my rant about him. Um, <laughs> yeah. But like, I'm sure you heard about the Nova Scotia shooting, right? Yes, I did, mate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, this is like crazy. I, it, it it turns out that guy might have been an RCMP informant, and they knew about him. And we do have red flag laws here. You know, the things they're resisting in the states. Whereas if you think someone's nuts, you can call them in and they take their guns away. Yeah, and, yeah. And this guy had been reported for ever and wow. the RCMP should have taken all his stuff away and it turns out it's it's going to be good hitting the courts probably is he may have been an informant against wow. the crime organization and that's why he was continued to allow to be the psycho that everyone knew he was and ah, then our okay. government is using that as a reason to tr- take our gun more gun rights away now they're trying to ban a whole bunch of things and it's turning into a nightmare for them because it turns out it might have not been so legal the way they're doing it and but it just shows you it's like as you said it might have been counterproductive because like as a use of force expert it's like you know that it's predators if predators think it's going to get hurt doing something it's doing it's not going to do it that's why a lion takes out the weak right so if criminals think there's severe risk and consequences such as firearms um you're going to be less likely and you're seeing the our government now is blaming just gun ownership for crime gang crime particularly in toronto but when you actually follow the statistics and the numbers um it's coming in most of the firearms are coming in illegally through the state yes Yes. into canada they know this it's publicly available records and yet it's this, this, oh, we're going to make everyone safer by taking away your firearms. And I was like, but we don't really have a problem in Canada, except for the fact in that in this case, in, in the Nova Scotia case, the RCMP didn't do their job. 
in that he knew that he was a psycho. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, as you said, mate, that might have been the reason why he was allowed to continue. Yeah, probably. You know? It's still open, but it's pretty damning evidence that is publicly available already. Not to mention the million other damn scandals going on with this current government. <laughs> but uh, I won't bore <laughs> with that shenanigans. Well, uh, well, actually, mate, after that shooting, there was a documentary here and it talked about gun ownership in Canada as opposed yeah. to America. Yeah. And, and I was actually shocked, mate. Um, I, you know, I knew that you know, there's a lot of guns in Canada, but, but they did a, a, a comparison between gun ownership in, in Canada and the U.S. and the number of shootings in the U.S. compared to Canada. Mm-hmm. And, mate, there was, you know, obviously this marked difference between the number of, of, of shootings and, um, and in particular, like active shooter situations and stuff like that. And uh, I was surprised, mate, of the number of guns in Canada and the ownership of firearms in Canada. It's quite and, high. Um, I mean, you have to remember it, this country was founded on basically fur trapping and, yeah. and, and conquering the wilderness per se. 100%. 100% uh, mate. So it's part of our history. And because and, and, we have, you know, like similar to Australia in the sense that we have a few cities and a giant piece of land. And yeah, yeah. The, the conversation is often dictated by those five cities, but the other half of the population lives in rural Canada. And you know, I would rather walk around with a pistol for animal self-defense personally because I'm. It's quicker. It's easy to maneuver. I'm not allowed to anymore. You you basically can't. There are a few exceptions, but you needs to be job related. Like if you're an actual fur trapper, they might allow you to. Yeah. yeah. But you basically have to walk around with an because uh, the way they classify firearms here is uh, non-restricted, restricted, or prohibited. Right. So okay. non-restricted being your um, your like hunting firearms and a lot of, ironically enough, the Tavor, the Israeli, is a non-restricted here. Yet the AR, up until recently, was a restricted. Restricted being handguns and anything they designated as restricted. And those can only be taken to a range, a gunsmith, or anywhere legally allowed to. While as non-restricted can be taken anywhere. And then prohibited is like machine guns and, yep. and stuff like that, which you basically have to have a prohibited license to have. And you're Good luck getting that as the average person. There are reasons if you're a collector or um, armorer in the movies, you can get it usually. Um, so they've sort I mean, to me, a lot of the ways it's arbitrary though. Like I was a machine gunner, sniper, like yep. a machine, like to me, the whole thing about fully automatic firearms is like, who wants to spend the money on that? And I think a trained hunter even with a bolt action rifle could probably take more people out quicker than someone with a machine gun in most cases. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's this, the, the, the misinformation about these things, right? And we, as you mentioned, as Australia, you're hearing, oh yeah, firearms ownership in Canada. I never would have thought. And it, it, it really shows that there's something wrong with what's going on in America. Like why, maybe it's the lack of mental health uh, support. Yeah. Right. We have very, yeah. it's not, it's, I wouldn't call it the best in the world by any means, but, there's a lot of network support networks here for people to get the help they need. And it's yeah, very definitely. rare to see that kind of thing. And, you know, we have things, safe storage laws, um, where you have to store your firearms in the house properly, you know, with yes. a, either a trigger lock or in a gun cabinet or safe, especially if there's children. Definitely. Um, and it, Same as Australia. Yeah. And that yeah. had dramatically reduced, um, accidental discharge causing death uh, crazily. And what a lot of people don't know is when I, I say to people, what's the number one cause of death regarding firearms in Canada? What do you think it is? 
who me? Yeah, what, what's your guess? If I, you were to guess, what's the number one reason someone dies due to a firearm in Canada? Probably safety, mate. Probably the accidental, mate. It's, it's not because somebody's pointing at them. Probably self suicide. Suicide, yep. It's yeah, 80%, yeah. something like yeah. that. And that number yeah. has been pretty consistent. Now, since they introduced the, the safe storage laws, it's reduced a bit because it gives people a time to think, right, before they act. Yeah. Because it's a very yeah. spur of the moment thing, but uh, people always will say, "Oh, a crime." It's like, well, actually, no. I, I don't have the stats right in front of me. If off the top of my head, I think it's fifteen percent will be classified. It's like eighty something percent, give or take, a suicide. Fifteen is like what they call a misuse of a firearm, and then five percent okay. uh, is something else. I can't remember right now. But that fifteen percent, the misuse of firearms, is where the crime happens. Uh, all that, but what they don't tell you is that 15%, a lot of those are paperwork crimes, you know, or okay. an accidental discharge resulting in the yes. loss of a license. Uh, yes. So it's actually a very small percentage of firearms related crimes in Canada. Uh, and almost all of it is towards organized crime and using illegal firearms. Now, I even saw the media pad the stat once. They took Aerosoft accidents and included oh. in that once. This isn't the RCMP stats. This is what the media did one time to pad yeah. the stats about how dangerous around children is. And then you read it and you're like, dude, it's Aerosoft. Like, what are you talking about? You know? <laughs> so for me, it's especially with firearms. Like, again, I, I don't know what's going on in the States with that because I am, I'm no problem if you are a trained individual having a carry license personally. I agree. Right? Yeah, I agree, mate. Yeah, um, yeah. But just the misinformation, the fact that people don't even know their own laws is where things can go sideways. And you can see, to me, I just look at history and if someone wants to confiscate, is so adamant about confiscating firearms or an easy means for people to defend themselves, I'm going to question the shit out of that person, right? Because I think that they have more nefarious long-term plans if they don't want the average citizen to, to be able to reasonably defend themselves, you know? Yeah, 100%, mate, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting talking to you, mate, about that because you, you, you look at, you know, Canada, the US, Australia, for example, and um, like here in Australia, mate, as I said, you know, it, any country in the world, when they want to ban firearms, they always use Australia as a, as a case you know, study. You know, they always do. And um, and there's, there's merit in that, but there's also, you know, they've got to also look at the big picture too. Um, mate, a few years ago, what was it, 2000, 2017, I was in the US, um, and um, I was in Las Vegas, and we were lined up at a, at a Walmart. It was, what was it, the um, the Black Friday? What's it called, the Black Friday uh, sales? Stay away from anything in the States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah we, we, we were lined up, mate, and, um, and, and we're in this big line. And as it kind of went around, I was just, you know, looking around, taking it all in, and all of a sudden a guy lifted his jumper up, and he had a, he had a firearm, he had a, had a pistol, and straight away, he went to adjust his holster. So for me, thinking, this guy's going for a draw. Mm-hmm. And I was just about to, you know, go hands-on. Yeah. And then, then, then quickly I realized I'm in the US. <laughs> they have concealed carry. You know, this guy's it, it's, it's not just slung in his back pocket or something. It's in, a, in an actual holster. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was just readjusting his holster. So just at the last minute, I stopped myself from going hands-on and yeah. calling out gun, 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 you know, and then realized where I was. Um, yeah, you know, and and so for the first couple of days, mate, there, I, you know, you have to, 
you have, even the people I'm staying with, the family I'm staying with, you know, he, he carries a firearm. He's got one in the in the car and stuff like that. And you just got to get your head around that because yeah. when you come from a society where you don't see that, and the only people carrying firearms, if they're not law enforcement, they're uh, criminals. Mm. Um, so you know, as I said, we we do have a large um, population of people that do have firearms here, sporting shooters or recreational shooters, you know, a rural, as you said before, John, you know, it's, you know, in Australia, we've got a massive, massive land here and there's a large percentage of that is rural. Mm. And when they've taken the ability away from the farmers and that to be able to use firearms because they've restricted the type of classification of firearms, it's, you know, it's made it very, very difficult for a lot of people. But on the other side of the coin, mate, um, I recall, you know, well, you know, many years ago, um, being offered a, a Sten, a World War Two Sten machine gun, yeah. nine millimeter Sten machine gun, and three hundred rounds of ammo for two fifty US dollars. Yeah, you know, in the back of a car, and uh, you know, like, and, and even when I was working uh, as a police officer, mate, uh, I remember a, a raid I went on in Sydney, and um, and we found an AK forty seven. Yeah, with a, with an organised crime gang, and so here in Australia, there's a lot of firearms out there. There's a lot of firearms on the black market. There's a, and they're all imported from overseas or bought in overseas, and um, and even in the last couple of years with these 3D printers, there's organisations here now, mate. You know that that are actively making firearms through 3D printers. Yeah, yeah, you know, and yeah, and and doing doing good work with it too. So, I think no matter where you are in the world, mate, if you want a firearm, if you're really intent on having a firearm, you got the right means, the right amount of money, you can pretty much pick. Oh, up of course! Like even in high school, you know, I was a pretty good kid, more or less. You know, we all make decisions and stuff. But I knew people in high school, high school kids, who could get yeah. me an illegal handgun. That's what I mean. Yeah. Just give them the money and they'll get it for you. And so, you know, if, if someone, as I'm sure you know, if someone really wants to do something, they're going to do it. Or That's it. you mentioned AK-47, they're, they're prohibited in Canada, so you can't have them. Yeah. I've seen people in, in, the, in the bush with them just shooting. Yeah. So either, yeah. which you're not allowed to do. If it's, it's restricted or prohibited, you can't take it out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we are fortunate, though, on what would be considered crown land, which is most of Canada. You can shoot non-restricted as long as there's no bylaws in that area or something. Oh, okay. Contract. Yeah. So, you know, it's very common. People go off, like I'm in British Columbia, you just go off on the logging roads, find a clearing with your non-restricted rifles, and you just go shooting, and it doesn't bother anyone. What I would say is, um, you know, one time I was doing that, uh, all legal, of course, um, a forestry individual came up to me and was... Uh, we obviously have guns with us and he's got a gun. Doesn't think anything of it. He's just there to tell us like, Hey, can you please pick it up? Cause someone's accidentally set a fire last week doing this. And we're like, no problem. But I know for a fact, the city police who have this different mentality are going to react very differently. Uh, assuming you're legally doing what you're supposed to be doing. Um, Cause like legally technically, I do not advise this to anyone who's listening to me. If I have a non-restricted firearm, that's unloaded, hypothetically, I can walk down the street with it in, say, Vancouver. Now, what's going to happen if you do that? You're going to get arrested. You'll get charged with other, like, disturbance of the peace. But if I do the same thing, like, in rural Canada, they'll probably just be like, Bob, what the hell are you doing? Like, 
Yeah. So there's yeah. a very the, the big contrast between uh, rural Canada and the cities, but the cities are what yeah. decide all the power, you know. And it, it, it now here usually the the native communities are exempt from most of these laws, um, which is you know a debate in itself. Uh, considering, unfortunately, they are responsible for a lot of the the violent crime in most of Canada due to oh, complicated issues, very complicated issues. You know, I'm not yeah. black and white at, at all. Um, so it's very interesting when governments decide that the political ramifications are not worth it. Oh, they can they can have it unrestricted, but everyone else can't. It gets like very interesting as who's making the decision sure. why, and uh, most people don't bother to actually look into it. You know, yeah, it very, becomes very hypocritical. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. Uh, if you it's interesting to see what will happen in Canada um, because the current gun grab is so problematic for both legal reasons and practical reasons. It's it's going to be quite the uh, shit show here for the next little while. I can imagine that. Yeah, I can imagine, mate. <laughs> I can imagine, mate. Yeah, yeah. But as you said, as someone from another country, you don't even think Canada, the peaceful guys in igloo who like hockey, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I always knew you guys had guns there. I, yeah. oh, I, it was just the, the fact that this documentary was so well done that they, they, the comparison between firearms there and the US and then the number of of actual active shooter situations in the US compared to Canada and the number of actual, you know, shootings itself. It was, a, it was a, you know, and that gets you thinking because even Australia prior to the um, Port Arthur massacre, you know, there was a lot of guns, a lot of people shooting. We had a massive ownership of firearms here. And even back in those days, you could buy, you know, you, you could buy a, a Chinese SKS mate for fifty dollars. Oh, I wish. You know, they're about two fifty, three hundred here. Yeah, like you know, back then in those days, you, you could buy a lot of different weapons back in those days, and but we didn't have the number of shootings, mate. We didn't have the the level of crime that they have, you know, in in the world today. Back yeah. in those days, mate. You know, back in those days, if you you know, sure, you, you, there might be a shooting every now and then. There might be a stabbing or something. But back in those days, mate, you know, if you want to you know, have a fight with somebody or you've got problems, you, you, know, you, you go hands-on, mate. You know, you don't yeah. – we've only – we've been fortunate, mate, in Australia. We've had a couple of – there's been probably three significant mass shootings here in Australia. Yeah. And uh, most people don't even know what the other two are. And, yeah, um, right. But but you know what? We didn't have the the number that obviously occur in the US. It's almost like on a it's almost like, you know, on a weekly basis in in the US somewhere there's a mass shooting. Yeah. Well, you know, it's and, funny because uh I don't know if you follow my blog. Oh, a while ago, I can't maybe a year, I can't remember. I did like a I did a bit of research in like killing like uh murder rates in, in various yep. countries. Now country to country it is difficult to get accurate numbers. And when you look yeah. at like homicide rates, um, the U S like per capita is actually not that high up. And he's like number one country, I think in the thing was uh, El Salvador. And then you look at like murders in okay. Brazil and it's like 60, 70,000 a year. And you're like, what the hell? And, and the media tension yeah, is, always, is always on the States. Right. Yeah, of course. And yeah. It's not while they definitely have problems <laughs> for sure. I think there's just yeah. a lot of corruption in the States and nonsense and misinformation, but on a global scale, maybe not right now in certain cities, but it's generally not that bad in the States. The question would be, 
the mass shooting thing is that is a phenomenon in itself. But then again, well, let's take a look at the cartel wars in the States. Aren't those mass shootings, mass murders, you know, and that's, that's right. Yeah. It's a bit of a delusion. I think to say that America is this only one that has this problem and everyone likes to shit on them, Definitely. but it's like, well, that's let's it, look at other countries <laughs> properly. That's it. Find out what that's happened it. now, you know? And you've only got to look at places like, you know, I've spent a lot of my time in China and you've got to look at like China, mate. They've got, they've had a lot of, a large number of mass attacks, mate, with the use of knives. Yep. Where they've gone, in, where they've gone into schools and kindergartens and they've actually, you know, and these, um, these offenders might have actually gone into there and killed a large number of children very, very quickly just yeah. with the use of a knife, you know, these, these mass mass attacks and stuff. And, and people kind of overlook that and they think, okay, yeah, it only happens in America. Um, yeah. We've only got to look at other countries that have had mass shootings They're and stuff too. too, right? Yeah, that's it. Exactly right, mate. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, if, you know, as I've said a number of times in China to the Chinese police, the only reason you don't have mass shootings over here is because people can't get the access to them yeah. as, as, as freely as they can in the US. But if they could, then you, you want to think to yourself that if they're going to go into a school with a knife, well, sure enough, they'll go in there with a gun if they've got the means to, to obtain one. Yeah. Well, you know, you uh, say that about the, 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 the mass knife attacks, and I believe they happen far more than we realize. They're yeah. just not reported. And from the ones that are reported on, like, abnormally big difference, there's more people killed in a mass stabbing attack on average than a mass shooting attack. Now, um, in the States, I don't know about other countries, for political reasons, I imagine, they keep lowering the number of people dead required to call it a mass shooting. It used to be a lot higher. Now it's like four people. Okay. And then you look at yep. like a mass knife attack, it's like 30 people every time, 20 people every time. And you're like, yeah, what the hell? I know England tried to ban knives or something and I just like, you guys are nuts. Like that's, yeah. <laughs> well, who is thinking of that? You're not gonna, it's not something you can get rid of, you know, bladed object or you can sharpen a Bic to be a stabbing object, a Bic that's lighter. Exactly, you know? mate. Exactly, mate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Violence, if you, again, violence, you know. That's it, mate. That's exactly right. Um, you know, as you said, violence is violence, mate. And um, whatever they have available, they'll use it. Yeah. And uh, I think people don't realize that because I think the world is using the U.S. as a distraction in many ways to cover oh, up yep. their own shit that they... That's it, mate. You know, look 100%. at them, what they're doing. It's kind of like I, I make fun of the American military. It's like you only ever hear about the Marines and the Navy SEALs now. When the hell do you hear about the rest of any of the other armed services? And I'm like, they like it like that. You, they distract you with the Marines. Meanwhile, yeah, all yeah. these other army units are going and doing all this crazy stuff you know nothing about because no one's paying attention to them. It's the same That's thing. It. Everyone's shitting on the states. Meanwhile, we got all sorts of other problems going on in the world that are in many ways worse. Uh, but yeah, everyone's definitely. shitting on the states. Um, so it's... Uh, Global conflict is, is I, I have a feeling it's like, it's cyclical. It's going up and down towards another war. It's like we, something happens, it's, the peak is there and it goes down and then, uh, and then it goes down and then, uh, you know, and, you know, we you don't want to get too much into it, but like what's going on with China, it's like, yeah. guys, I, this is a repeat of history. And everyone's like, no, it's not, it's fine. Like, oh, 
Sure. And then we'll see what happens. I have no idea. No, I just was reading a quote from uh, the Filipino president. I mean, he's a little interesting character himself, but he was just saying he, he would he want to go to war with China, but he can't because they know they'll lose because they keep trying to take their land, right? So that's it. That's it. It's like, oh, but America's got a gun problem. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You, you know, my, from, from here down, down the Asia Pacific region, um, you know, and, and other parts of the world aren't aware of this, mate, because, you know, a lot of, as you said, everybody, the focus is often on the, on the U.S. And, and also many people in the U.S., mate, their focus is just on the U.S. So yeah. From my experience in the U.S., you know, a lot of people don't know what's happening around the world. But it's all, they're very insular in many cases, you know. Um, I remember even when we were doing that course in L.A., I was at local Starbucks and I, and I was sitting there and after the class, that, after, after the course that night, and um, I just said to a guy, I said, g'day, mate, how are you going? And he said to me, he said, oh, where are you from? I said, Australia. Yeah. And he said, oh, it must be, must be very cold there at the moment in, in Austria. <laughs> yeah. He said, it must be very cold there in Austria. Yeah. I said, no, no, I'm from Australia. He goes, and he asked me where, where Australia was. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I thought, oh, my goodness, like, are you serious? Yeah. So, you know, in, in, at the moment down here, yeah, there's major concerns with China, mate. You've got um, the, the South China Sea. Um, and my biggest concern is, mate, that I, I personally believe that in the next in the next 18 months to two years, there will be a, uh, a heightened level of conflict between China and Australia, yeah. um, obviously China and America. Um, there's also conflict at the moment, obviously, with um, the Chinese and the, and the Philippines, yeah. Burma, Vietnam, you know, a lot of the countries, Japan, uh, this whole area, this whole South China Sea, and it's a, uh, a bit of a, it's a bit of a, um, a tinderbox at the moment. Yeah. And um, I, I believe what's going to happen in the next 18 months um, to two years is there will be a miscommunication and I believe that the Chinese will will try to shoot down one of our one of our planes, one of our, you know, maybe attack one of our, our boats, um, one of our Navy ships or another or another country. And uh, I believe that they're um, – it's very much like the, the 1930s and the, the mindset of the Japanese back then, mate, the domination and, yeah. uh, of you this know, whole I, region. I, a little while ago, I went to a talk from the, I forgot the gentleman's name, but he, he was the former head of CSIS, which is like the Canadian CIA. Yes. Yeah. And he was basically saying, yeah, Russia, this is at the height of the Russia gate nonsense stuff. And he yep. was like, yeah, Russia is a problem, but they're more like that annoying kid flicking you in the ear. China is a real threat. And, you know, and I heard it coming from his mouth. I'd kind of heard it before. I'm like, oh, and yet the narrative, at least in the States, is still Russia, 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 still. Yeah. I'm like, but the evidence, like, doesn't support that. And uh, I think it's just because the economies are so intertwined with China, there's a lot of hesitance to do anything because, I mean, I look at it, I compare, like, people don't want to learn history and it's like i'm what china's doing right now is comparable to 1930s hitler and not the you know trump is hitler because i don't like him i'm like literally they're annexing stuff they're yeah. you know yeah. saber rattling they're saying you know what yeah. are you going to do they're interfering with like heavily with other people's governments and i'm just like man like does no one else see this as a problem yeah you know putin That's is a dick, but whatever you know he's not really doing much more than trying to maintain russia's glory or whatever uh, and they don't have the resources yeah. to do a lot of the damage that people say they do like financially, they're not in a position to do, but China is is Definitely. in control of that. 
they did a, a what I call a soft takeover of a lot of the world, and then oh, nice so, different. Yeah, realizing oh shit, like we're about to get the rug pulled out from under us, and and no one is quite sure what to do because you know just like in Kramaga, if someone's being violent to you and you're unable to avoid it, you have one option. I, I say that about sanctions too. Like sanctions will only go so far. Like if mm. you don't want a country to do something, you have one choice, and of course nobody wants this to happen because who wants to have another major war? That would be very bad. But. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It, you, you know, since this whole COVID period, mate, too, is, um, you know, the Australian government, and we're very fortunate. We've got a very, very good prime minister here at the moment. And, and, and he has done a, an amazing job through this whole period, but he, he came out, you know, at the start of the COVID period and said, you know, he wanted, he, he basically called China out. Mm. And um, and because of what he's done and what our government's done, China has has tried a number of bullying tactics against us here. And uh, I think what they maybe thought, I think they underestimated us. And I think <laughs> what they thought we were going, I think they thought we we're going to basically fold in and just kind of and and give in to them. Yeah. But we haven't actually, and we've actually um, we've fought back, and um, you know in a, in a respectful way, but. Yeah. We've fought back in a very, very stern way, and we've sent you know a stern message back to them, and and we've said to them, you know, you can stop our trade, you can do this, you can threaten us with this, but you know what? We're a sovereign country, we're a sovereign nation, we, yeah. we are democratic. You know, we will we will stand up to you if you if we believe you're doing the wrong thing, we'll stand up to you, and we certainly have, mate, over the last you know over the last in particular the last six months, it's been actually quite quite uh, amazing to see. And uh, I think the I think the the CCP might have actually kind of I think they've been a little bit shocked with with our reaction the way we've actually stood up to them, and you know consequently a lot of other countries are now starting to stand up. Yeah, to them and, except you know, one country that I'm unfortunately living in. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and there's also a like major Western power at, due to our current government that's basically rolling over and yeah yeah like the huawei thing um that's it there's three or four major telecommunication companies in the country and they're heavily involved intertwined to like a corrupt level with the governments here but Mm. two of the major carriers on their own were like we are not having anything to do with huawei we're not we're we're not going to use their 5G technology. It's, the government didn't do anything. It's, mm. it's the companies privately recognize this is a problem. The third big one had already started and now is kind of like, what do we do? I suspect they don't want the public to really realize that they've already been installing Chinese technology. And yeah, yeah. They're probably caught with their pants down now. But I think if the public really pays attention, they're going to jump from that carrier to the other two because it's, 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 it's safer. Not to mention the Huawei exec is being held uh, in Vancouver, actually. House arrest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from I what think- I've heard, it's not really a house arrest, but... Uh, Close no. enough. <laughs> Close enough, yeah. Well, you know, and I think the biggest problem we've had over the last 15 years, mate, is because, you know, you, you, you look at uh, the, the US, Canada, Australia, you know, all, all of the major countries in the world, mate, we've been immersed in Iraq and Afghanistan in particular. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and our, our, our whole focus has been on, obviously, terrorism, which is, which is you know, completely understood. Mm-hmm. But our whole focus has been on the Middle East, yeah. And what's happened is we've let our guard down, and slowly the the CCP have they've they've watched this and they've they've actually used this 
and it's been a bit of a smoke screen. And slowly, what they've done is they've built up their military bases, they've taken over islands and lands, and you know, stealing other people's you know sovereign um, country and that. And and what we've been, I think, in many cases, mate, the world's been asleep. And yeah. China has slowly, just slowly, bit by bit by bit, done this. And um, and then what's happened is at the last minute we realise, geez, you know, like we, we've got to we've got to be careful. And now the the attention, I obviously notice in the, with the US now, their attention has come, you know, basically full circle. And now they they obviously understand that China is a major threat to them in many many cases. Obviously, the theft of intellectual property and you know and even you know militarily. Um, and I think they've kind of they're playing catch up. Yeah. And I think most of the countries around the world, mate, including our own, are playing catch up now. Um, and, and as I said, mate, like I've spent a lot of time in China. I've, I've been going to China since 1987, which is my first trip there. And I was there up until October last year. But I think I've done 37 trips now. And and then the whole, in, in overall, mate, the Chinese people are, you know, uh, are great people. And the it's not so much the Chinese people, it's the CCP. Because mm-hmm. I, I often ask people, you know, in China, like, if they're a member of the party, that's different. But there's a lot of people there that might, would would love to see the CCP fall down and mm. become a democratic nation, you know. And um, and uh, it's not so much the Chinese people per se, it's the CCP. Um, yeah. And obviously there's a lot of propaganda that's used effectively there. Um, and the, they often talk about losing face, and which is, to me, it's a, it's a very hypocritical you um, just, yeah, on a, on a yeah, level, yeah. I think. Yeah. 100%, mate. Yeah, you know, and, um, but um, we we have to be concerned about this. And if only you look at what's happening internally in China with Xinjiang and, you know, and what's happening over there, obviously looking at Hong Kong. And um, there's a big picture here that's happening. And uh, I think if the if the world collectively doesn't, doesn't stand up to them sooner rather than later, uh, we're gonna have we're gonna have a bit of a mess, mate, around the world in in many many situations, you know. Now I don't know if you know much about the demographics of Vancouver, but it is eighty percent Asian, including Indians. But that means we have a large, large, large Chinese community here. Yeah, and it's interesting because you can see the divide. Like a while back, you know, when the at the start of the Hong Kong protests, you were actually getting brawls between. Yeah. Uh, mainland Chinese students here on, yep. on student visas with yes. Hong Kong students who are on Hong Kong visas or you grew up. It's just like crazy. Like yeah. Stuff. And you know, the media is barely touching it cause they are like, eh, but it's, you know, I know this is going on and, and it's a complex and even amongst themselves, it's a complex issue. And I've been in places where I get, you know, uh, Chinese individuals who left, China and are like very vocal against the government. And then you get actually the younger generation here who's like, Oh, I love China because they don't know any better. <laughs> you that's know, it. the reason that's your it. parents left. Uh, that's now, it. Exactly. You add to that on the sort of a flip thing. Like I've never been to China, but uh, someone close to me was recently there before COVID and, you know, obviously they're very careful what they say when they're there, but they were asking, people in uh, sort of mid mid east coast china i guess and um you know how do you think and of course we're like oh it's great you know i need food they get, make sure we get food and if i need an apartment they make sure i have an apartment and and, and they've done in many ways a masterful job with lots of their population 
to not have the peasant revolt anymore. You know, what's what created yes. the Communist Party in China, they're doing everything they can not to allow that to happen again. Right. Keep keep everyone somewhat happy enough. Yes. They don't want to revolt because, I mean, as big as their army is, the population is bigger. Right. And they know that. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very interesting because I know people who will deny Mao is bad here in Vancouver. Then I know people who were in Tiananmen Square and they're like, yes. oh, it's like, it was a horrible thing. Right. So it's so it depends on where people grew up and what their belief systems are, whether or not they see them as a positive influence or a negative influence. And, and don't get me wrong. I love Chinese food and Chinese culture, but from the, yeah, of course, the CCP, mate. it's very, uh, uh, problematic in many ways. You know, it's it's what, what you said. We've we've had the same problems here, mate. Uh, even on university campuses and stuff like that. There's been a lot of a lot of problems here um, with pro Beijing and and um, pro Hong Kong. And um, and as you said, mate, this we've got a large a large population here. We we have a large community Chinese Australian community, yeah. and. Um, a lot of those are from mainland China. A lot of those are from Hong Kong. And um, you, you talk to people that were born in Hong Kong. You put, talk to people that have grown up in Hong Kong. They don't class themselves as Chinese. They, they class themselves as Hong Kongese. And, um, and and they're, they're brokenhearted at what's happening in China at the moment. And um, on the other side of the coin, you've got people that are mainland China. And um, they believe still to this day, they believe that Hong Kong's part of China, Taiwan's yeah. part of China, you know, yeah. and... and and, and anywhere in the world that's got Chinese people's part of China. Um, and that's because of the propaganda machine that the, the CCP is, mate. You know, and, uh, you know, we've got to be really, really careful. We've got to be really awake to what's happening because this is going to, this is going to spread. This is going to, this is going to cause problems oh, to yeah. the world. And, you know, as um, year ago. someone was telling me uh, from pretty legitimate source, and it's pretty publicly available that they've now developed uh satellite technology that can track like intercontinental ballistic missiles in real time now, right? China. And so everyone's a little bit freaking out um, because of that. I I was just telling this person like, yeah, it's not that impressive because Israel's had technology like that since the eighties anyways. So, but for China to have it, who's a world uh, global aggressor, it's like, uh Oh, now we're going to have some problems. Right, because yeah, now they're on equal footings or getting close to equal footings militarily. Like, what do we do without a full-scale war? It's pretty, pretty not such a. And I'm not advocating that at all. I just, you know, you just take one wrong politician or one miscommunication. Like, you know, I don't know the uh, the Cuba missile crisis. To my understanding, was actually avoided by the submarine captain, not of the Russian subcap, who just didn't shoot the missile or something. Um, okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, I've heard that. So it, it you never know what's going to set it off or save it because it's usually something completely obscure. It's like every damn Israeli war that they won dramatically. It's because some person did something so ridiculous that no one was expecting, you know? So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have no idea where that's going to go. As I tell everyone, learn martial arts and get guns just in case if you're able to, uh, <laughs> even if you don't want to use them on a day-to-day basis, uh, you ne- you just know, no, no, no. Cause like I listen to, you know, a lot of intellectual podcasts, like, or like, I don't know if you know who Noah Yuval Harari is at all. Yeah. Israeli. No, no. Yeah, he's, he's an Israeli yeah. author. He wrote these best-selling books, but him and a lot of academics have this idea that uh, and I, I like a lot of what they're saying, but they have this idea that we're in such a state of progress 
we can never go back to the way things were. Uh, don't worry, there's never going to be a war like that again. Uh, we're, 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 while yes, statistically, the world is better than it's ever been, you're less likely to die. You're like, you don't have to worry about dying of an infection as much. And for most of the world, you know, a lot of diseases are going away. But you know what hasn't changed is humans. And it always, it. it always reminds me of the uh, Einstein quote, or give or take, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know uh, what weapons are going to be fought with during World War III, but I know that World War Four is going to be fought with sticks and stones. And mm-hmm. it's like, I don't understand how these hyper-intelligent, very well-read, educated individuals can think it's never going to happen again. We said that about the Holocaust, and then yeah. that happened again and again and throughout the world. And it's like, what yeah. do people think? Like, I, I just don't get why people don't take this stuff more seriously. I, I, I tend to agree with you, mate. I think probably the reason people don't is because the majority of the population walk around with their head in the sand. Yeah. They walk around with their head, you know, nothing's going to happen to me. And, and um, you know, they've, they've got this kind of this, this whole mindset that, you know, they, they don't see, they don't see outside the box. And um, I think while, while humans are still animals, well, we still have that animal, you know, instinct and that mindset um, that we're, we're always going to have these problems no matter where because, you know, when you look at globally, mate, um, you only got to look at the way people think in different different communities, different societies, different, you know, countries. Um, it's that animal instinct, dog-eat-dog world, yep. you know, and it goes right back to what you said at the start about the line, you know, and um, and that's what it is. It's people want domination, I think. It all comes down to ego too, greed, ego, all those mm-hmm. factors. You know, bringing it back to Krav Maga, you know, I talk about this stuff periodically in class. One, because I enjoy it, but two, I look at it as it, it's part of self-defense because Canadians like to travel. And yeah. I'm just like, oh, you don't like politics? You think it's irrelevant? You don't like history? You don't think it's irrelevant? Like, what happens if you go somewhere that you weren't paying attention to? It's like I use, sometimes I'll use Thailand as an example. Well, they had a military sure. coup a few years ago. That's it. Exactly and right, like, did you know that a lot of people got stuck in the middle of this because they weren't paying That's attention it. to the warnings that, Hey, political rumblings don't go to Thailand and they go, Oh yeah, it's no problem. Or, or, or even better the Mexico. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> do you want to go to Mexico? Really? Are you sure? Do you know how safe it is? And they're like, That's Oh, it. it's totally fine. I'm like, are you going to go outside of the, uh, the resorts? Maybe. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that, mate. <laughs> Not I'll a good idea. They'll find your body riddled with bullets and uh, in a burnout car or something like that, mate. You know. Yeah. And, uh, well, on that note, I had a, a someone I met in Israel who's Mexican. He was doing helping out volunteering in in Israel, and he just he he, he was making the joke. He's like Mexicans are afraid of the dark, and I'm like, that's not funny. He's like, it's not meant to be funny. Don't go out at night and don't go out at night by yourself. Like yeah, that's what definitely. I meant. <laughs> that's it. You know, it, it's interesting. It's interesting, mate. You you you're saying this because um again. Just from my experience in talking to other people from other, and we'll use Krav Maga as an example, they they're not getting they're not getting taught this. Yeah. And it's interesting you're saying this because this is the same concept that I have. I, I quite often will bring up these types of things with my students. We'll discuss them. We have our own group, our own group um, page on Facebook where I I post a lot of information about this type of stuff about what's happening in the world. Because as I say to my students. All the time, you know, 
when you think about what Krav Maga is, where it came from, what it's designed to be, it, it's a it's it's a holistic approach to self-preservation. It's not just mm-hmm. the physical aspect. And if you don't have that, you know, and that's why the tactical preparation. And to me, tactical preparation is understanding the areas that you're operating, the the actual country you're going to. You know, what are the threats? What are what are some of the historical problems they've had there? Like you said before about Thailand, it's interesting because when that coup happened. You know, I brought that up with my students and talked the same thing. What happens if you're in a country and you can't get to the airport? Um, I was in the Philippines several years ago and um, we we were on the way to the airport to go to a, to another part of the Philippines and we couldn't get through. They had actually, the government, all the police and the military had sealed off around the area yeah. about 10 k's out. So we actually had to then get out of the taxi, put our backpacks on and go by foot to go in towards the, um, to the airport. It was because of the IPAC. Um, I think one of the one of the foreign leaders, one of the foreign leaders, was flying in, so they shut the whole airport down. Yeah. So we had to get off and then go by foot to get to the actual airport in time. So I say to my students, you know, you've got to prepare for this type of contingency. And if you don't have these backup plans and you don't have this kind of this understanding, then you're really not training in in, in true Krav Maga, as far as I'm concerned, in real yeah. Krav Maga. Yeah, you know, and I've had I occasionally being because Vancouver is quite left wing. I generally don't attract those types of individuals. It's always good for my mental well being. <laughs> but occasionally, I'll get a student that comes in, and I'll be talking about something like this, and they get really upset because they're like, "Well, this is not what I, I signed up for." I'm like, "Well, what did you yeah, sign up yeah. for?" And it's you know like the fitness style crowd. My God, they just want to get a sweat. I didn't come here. I just I don't yeah. want to think about anything. And I'm like. Yeah, Maga is you need to think. It, it, yeah, if you don't I don't think it's really Krav Maga. And, and That's it, man. Very yeah. upset when you start talking about things that they think is not related to self-defense, but I'm like, it is because we're in this world and everything is interconnected and and it's complicated. And as you said, most people have their head in the sand and they don't want to know. And to me, I'm just like, well, you, you, it's totally fine if you disagree with me. I just ask if you disagree with me that you don't make a scene in class, you can discuss outside of class. But as long as you're willing to listen, because I know a lot of what I'm saying, they haven't heard. Right? Like yes. I, I, I was going to, I finished my associate's degree in psychology and I actually started it and did two or three years. And then I just stopped. I was going for my bachelor's and I just stopped because I couldn't handle what I would consider brainwashing in the education system to just believe unrealistic nonsense to, on the left of the political scale. And I, as an older individual with experience, not some young, bright-eyed 18-year-old, I was like, I can't deal with this shit. Like some of the things the professors are saying, I'm like, that's, that's not true. And yeah, yeah. I went back this past year just to get my, enough credits to get my associates just so I don't waste it. But it's just like people, I've had other students that come in and say, I've never heard this perspective before. Like no one has ever told me in, you know, the 20, 30 years I've been in, you know, Canada, no one said this to me. And, and yeah, yeah. This, is, this is a problem that people don't want to get up objectively or you can call it subjective, whatever you want, but just a holistic view of, of whatever is going on, uh, you know. I think you need to have that, mate. If you don't have that, then you're not really preparing yourself, you know, for the possibilities of what could happen. And yeah. like I always, I always remind my students, no matter where you are in the world, 
if somebody attacks you, they don't care about you, they don't care about your welfare, they don't care about you know what injuries you sustained, they don't care about your loved ones, they don't care about the repercussions of what happens to you afterwards, they only care about themselves. Yeah. So if you don't have that idea, if you if you don't have that that preparation, um, especially if you're travelling overseas. No matter where you are, you need to understand that there is a threat there still. You can be in the safest country in the world, but there's still a threat. And um, and what's the what's the you know the potential threats? And if you don't have that kind of mindset, that hey, if somebody attacks me, just because I'm from Canada or I'm from Australia, doesn't mean they're going to say, oh, well, I'm not going to attack you because you're a tourist, you're a friendly guy, you're from a good country. They'll still kick this shit out of you, mate. They'll still stab you. They'll still bleed you. They'll still do whatever they want to do to you to get what they want, be it your body, be it your your, your money, be it your possessions. They, they, don't, they don't care. And, yeah. um, and and quite often I'll hear people say, oh, you know, but, you know, Australians are loved everywhere in the world. <laughs> and we are. We are loved everywhere in the world, everywhere we go. But there are also countries in the world where they don't like us because yeah. we are – political reasons or our, our alliances with other countries or our, our, the way we do things or the way we live our life. So, you know, they're more than happy to cut your head off or stab you or, you know, or abduct you, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And if you, if, and I guess for down here in Australia, mate, because we do have this kind of this happy go lucky attitude, we are friendly people. And, um, you know, we always have this kind of mindset. She'll be right, mate. You know, no, no worries, no problems, you know, no worries, you know, um, because of that, People tend to think that uh, I don't need to learn self-defense. It's not going to happen to me. Yeah, It always happens to somebody else, mate, until it actually happens to the person, you know? Yeah. So I always say to myself in my classes, I say, statistically, somebody in this room in the next six to 12 months will be confronted with violence. Yeah. And generally it does happen, mate. And I've had many occasions where, you know, I had a lady once that um, she'd only done three classes and she was at the um, service station, the gas station, and – um a guy confronted her and was aggressive to her and she basically did everything she'd been taught and the guy backed off, you know. And, and then she said to me afterwards, she said, wow, Paul, you know, you, you've actually told me in, on my first class that statistically somebody in this class will be confronted with violence. Little did I ever think was going to happen to me. Yeah. You know, so if we don't have our if – if we don't emphasise that continuously – and there's a difference between being a paranoid or being a pessimistic person. Uh, I always say that I'm, I'm, I'm a realist. I mm-hmm. just believe in the real world. And if there's a 1% chance it can happen, well, we'll prepare for that. Yeah. Well, you know, a large percentage of my students, male and female, have had things happen to them already. And that's why they choose to come. They do their research. Definitely. And they're looking into it. And I'm sure that's the yeah. same for all martial arts. Um, Definitely. But I just wish people learned it sooner so that they would be able to uh, defend themselves. And, and on that note, it's like, actually, statistically, you're more likely to be assaulted, especially women, of course, by someone you know. That's it, yeah. Stranger in, in a Western place, I should say, because of... Uh, yeah. And that's the other thing about a lot of these stats. It's who's doing them? Western universities. It's it's like the uh, the bystander effect. Are you familiar with that? People they on they they'll get their iPad and their iPhones out, mate, and just videotape and they get involved. Is it, yeah, know? basically, people won't get involved until yeah, someone yeah. else gets involved. And and yeah, that's it. it's a phenomenon that seems to be heavily in the West. So yes. who's done the research? Western universities. And I often use Israel as the example is that they don't really have that. You can get 50% of people getting away because they're not capable 
But then the other 50% yes. of people are going towards the, whatever the issue is because they yes. are capable. And then say like, China, actually a good example. Because of the legal and all this stuff, people don't want to get involved at all. Uh, yeah. someone, someone was telling me it's uh, one of the suburbs here, actually where I grew up is predominantly Chinese now. And they said, yeah, in that city, ain't nobody going to come help you. But if I'm in yeah, more, cultural. you know, Western uh, neighborhood, someone's more likely to get involved. Like, hey, you hooligan, get away from them or something. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 I find... That topic in the self-defense community is very taboo because nobody wants to be called racist. And I, I brought this up once. In, in a, someone else was teaching a seminar in Vancouver, uh, a fairly well-known uh, American gentleman. And I brought that up, culture and ethnic background, about regarding like violence. And he's like, everyone has the same blood. And it's like, well, yes, but... <laughs> um, yeah. Different mindsets, different mindsets, and different areas. Like, as a white male, do I want to be walking in Southside Chicago right now? Probably not. Nah, or, probably not. Mate. Wouldn't be wouldn't be healthy for you. Yeah. Or even you know, one thing other people are South Africa. I don't want to yeah. be there without a gun on me personally. If I was a white male by myself. But discussing this as part of self defense is very uncomfortable for a lot of people. Mm, Because they'll get labeled one way or the other, and then you just get thrown under the bus. But that's the nature of it. It, it, Again, as we've been discussing, you got to know where you are. What's the culture? Is there is there a violent area? Right. It's not even. It's honestly, it has more to do with socioeconomic status in many ways, as well as yeah, some culture. But people always want to make it about like skin color and race. But it's like, well, not specifically. No, you know. It's it's funny you say that, mate, because quite often I get called racist, and, that, and um, but they don't know me. They don't know my personal relationship. They don't know the colour of the skin of, of, of my partner. They don't know, you know, my background. Uh, and if they if they really did know my background, they'd be quite shocked. Um, and they certainly wouldn't call me a racist. Yeah. Um, and and the thing is, but I think as you said, people don't want to hear. They don't. They don't want to hear the truth, mate. In many cases, and, and you know, everybody's entitled to an opinion, and, and you respect each other's opinion. But from a self-defense point of view, if you can't bring up these these topics, uh, because this is an important part of it too. And like I said to you earlier, mate, we teach our students what happens after the attack. Yeah. How do you respond after the attack? How do you deal with other people? How do you deal with people coming in a mob mentality? And I've experienced this myself many, many times um, you know, as, uh, with the police, you know, especially overseas in, in countries where there's large crowds gathering and there's this mob mentality. Um, you can be standing there engaging with a threat and then somebody that has nothing to do with the other person, nothing to do with you, they get that mob mentality and they'll just come in from the side and king hit you. And that can be anywhere in the world. Yeah. But but discussing it with people, people say, oh, no, that won't happen. That won't happen. Well, well it does happen. And then likewise, as you said, in China, for example, you can be bleeding out on the side of the road and 90% of people will walk past you. They'll look at you because yeah. culturally it's, it's not acceptable for them to do with it. Where here in Australia, Traditionally, we look after each other. You know, we, we 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 back each other up. We look after our mates, so to speak. Even if we don't know the person, they're still our mate. We look after them. And um, but I've noticed that over the over probably the last decade, maybe the last two decades, that's slowly um, uh, it, it being erased too from our society, from our culture too. Um, I think human nature is that if you see somebody hurt, you want to go and help them. 
But I also think now because of media and social media and all the crap going on in the world, mate, that people have a tendency to get their iPhone out and get along, get along YouTube as fast as they can or on social media as fast as they can. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I tell people these days, like, no, I've gotten involved in situations once in a while, but I'll only do it if I feel someone's life is at risk. And I've probably saved some people, but like you don't always know nowadays and it could be more disastrous. So there's that aspect, yeah. right? If the wrong person films it the wrong way and it goes sideways because um, you misread the situation, like domestic disputes are very difficult to deal with. If you're not sure what's going on, yeah. you in, both of them will stab you, for example. Um, and and it's I would say it's the uncertainty is so much higher nowadays because it's not just physical anymore. It's, it's legal, it's complicated. And then of course the cultural yeah. difference, right? Everyone reacts differently to the same thing. That's it. Uh, and you know, a story I like to tell is uh, a few years ago, the UFC was here and uh, I went and of course people are drinking and on our way out, I have no idea what started it, but there was a big brawl. Of course, there's the big crowd surrounding it. And yeah. uh, no security or police anywhere to be found. Even though I know they're everywhere in the building, yet they're, this thing must have been going on for like 10 minutes. But when we got there, we just were like, hey, we're just going to walk in. Let's just see. And uh, it was just me and someone else. And uh, again, I have no idea what started it. We just saw this girl. This guy was fighting another one guy. And this girl just sucker punched him in the back of the head. And he just, without thinking, turned around and hit her. Any guesses what happened? Hey, somebody comes in and hits him? Uh, a girl sucker punched this guy in the back of the head who was probably fighting her boyfriend. <laughs> the crowd, people who weren't even involved, like five or ten guys jumped in and said, hey, you can't hit a girl, motherfucker, and then almost killed him. Yeah. Because yeah. within ten seconds, they had him knocked out. And that's when we, had, we just jumped in and to stop him from getting his head kicked in. And you see these people scatter like, like cockroaches when you turn the light on because those people who did that to this guy weren't even involved in the initial fight, right? That's they it. just That's it. they just saw their opportunity. Oh, he hit a girl. Well, hey, man, she sucker punched him in the back of the head. It's fair game. But yeah. their mentality yeah. was like, oh, you can't do that. But they were just looking for blood, jumping in. And so it, it can be very dangerous because if you live in a society where it's homogenous, you know the rules, how people are going to react. Yes. But when now with all this multiculturalism, nothing wrong with this, but it's just if there's no unifying culture, it's very hard to predict, especially in a group sitting, uh, setting, how people are going to react. And I think uh, the social media aside, that's a big part of the reason why people don't want to get involved. It's just too many unknowns now. That's it. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent, mate. Yeah, that is. That's the probably the the big downfall of our society now is that people are reluctant to help other people out, um, and you know they see people in harm, they'll either walk away, they'll either get their phone out and start video, or they're reluctant to to, to go hands on, and be it either a you know a self defence situation or even a medical emergency, people are just reluctant now to. To, to get involved and which is sad it's a, it's a sad you know indication of society in itself and uh, I, I, you know for myself personally I don't know maybe I'm old school but I still will get involved if it's a, a self-defense situation if it's a it's a medical situation I'll still go in 
obviously assess the situation, you know, do a, a quick risk analysis, but I will still go and get involved because and I had a recent example, mate, where um, I was in a car park and I hopped in my car and all of a sudden I heard this this screaming, shouting and all this abuse and that. And I looked in my rear vision mirror and there was these two guys, it was a car park rage incident and two guys were about to start going, you know, hands on. And I jumped out of my car and I just went straight over towards them and, and started, you know, trying to de-escalate the situation. And and they were, you know, abusing each other, screaming each other. And I was expecting one of them in particular to turn on me. And um, But I was prepared for that. And I just started to try to de-escalate and try to make them see reason. I said, come on, guys, just take, settle down, stop this. You know, what, what's going on? And I was able to actually de-escalate it to the point where I got them both thinking. I said to them, there's only two things that are going to happen here today. Somebody's going to get knocked on the ground. You're going to get your head. You're going to hit your head on the ground. You're going to you're in the hospital. The other person's going to go to jail. That's the only the only the only outcome. The only other possible outcome is just to turn around, walk away, and you go home safe to your family. Yeah. And I was able to. And they were pretty big boys, mate. They were you know they were, they were young, and one was really buffed up, and yeah, they were aggressive towards each other. And um, and I was able to defuse it, and they both walked off. Yeah. And one of them, well, as they both walked off, one actually said, you know, thanks, mate, I appreciate that. And as the other guy was driving off, he was probably the main instigator. I yeah. just pulled him over and I, I, I said to him, I said, did you know that guy had a knife? And he looked at me and he goes, no. I said, well, nor did I. But yeah. what would happen if he had have had a knife and he put it in your chest? You wouldn't be going home to your loved ones today, mate. You could be dead. Is it worth it? Yeah. And he goes, he goes oh, shit. He said, Shit, it's, shit, man. He said, "Did he have a knife?" I said, "I think he might have." Yeah, and yeah. and I said, and I said to him, I said, because I I expect that eight out of every ten people that I confront on the street is going to be armed with the blade. I said, I don't know if he did, mate, and you don't know if he did, but he could have. Was yeah. it worth it? And it got him thinking. He said, "Oh, you know, thanks, mate. I really appreciate that." You know, it just to just that opportunity to be able to maybe put something in the back there, plant a seed in the back of their mind that, you know, in the future, they won't be too quick to, to start wanting to fight people. Um, yeah, for sure. Like, you know, that's, you know, God. I assume they have a weapon and people just don't think about that nowadays in a lot of cases. And it's like, you they don't know, uh, especially certain, certain cultures are going to be more likely to, uh, like definitely in the Philippines that pretty much everyone's carrying something. And then definitely, uh, here, not so much. I mean, you can carry knives here, but like, I don't even need something like that. It could be anything, you know? So people, yeah. people over, you know, there's this, this um, article that goes, it's a spoof article. It goes around on the internet every so often. It's like the average male overestimates their ability to fight by 4,000%, you know? <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty funny read if you ever see it. And it just shows up every few years. And it's that ego again, I think. People don't want to... Um, address that and realize that, you know, it's complicated. It's not just, I punch him, they punch me. Oh, their weapon comes out. And then it's very, people just are, I think in many ways in the West, for sure, we're, we're actually, cause it's so safe relatively, people just don't even think about it, you know, yeah. places. And it's, it's hard to reeducate on people on that. Uh, I think sometimes. See, we have a, we have a growing knife culture here, mate. We do. Yeah, we have um, we have a, a big knife culture here, and um, you know, and even young children made a carrying blades here. Um, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of stabbings here. We have a, there's a massive increase of stabbings here in Australia. Yeah, um, see, I think that's I think that's fascinating and highly likely in any country with stricter gun laws. When when the tensions rise, you're going to start to see that. I think it almost like everywhere, every culture. Oh, I don't have guns. Oh, okay, there's mm. tensions rising for whatever the reason. People are going to start carrying. Uh, like again, in the states, I, I heard these stories from uh like you know people who are gun gun people and they're all of a sudden you know with all these riots going on all of a sudden gun sales are through the roof and it's actually the democrat voters who are going out and buying guns now they were anti-gun before yeah yeah. they're the first ones to go buy guns i've heard this people uh it's because no matter what your political belief no matter where you stand, your culture, you're human, and you want to protect yourself in the end of the day. And so Definitely. guns are Definitely. one of the easier ways because, I mean, as you know, most people don't want to spend the 10, 20 years developing their martial arts skills. Um, so guns are the option. But without guns, it's going to be knives, right? And well, I mean, I really prefer a staff or like a stick or a baton because um, it avoids the accidental killing more often than, say, a knife. But, you know, mm. people are going to draw towards knives or guns or something of that nature, given violent tensions, like almost without... Yeah. I, I think also, too, mate, like, I often thought about this, you know, do, do they carry more knives here because of the, the gun, there's lack of firearms? And, and there might be merit in that, but I also think a large percentage of the reasons, mate, is because they're easily accessible. Um, social media, uh, movies, mm. um, culture, because, you know, we, we've got people here from other cultures that come to Australia. They've got a nice culture where they come from, be it, you know, from the African countries or Asian, Asia Pacific regions. Um, but I also think it's also, mate, that there's just, there's this knowledge on the street that young people, people know that other young people are carrying blades so they will arm themselves with yeah. a blade purely for the for the reason of self-defense and there's been some really tragic cases here you know over the last 20 years but in particular the last 12 months there's been some some really tragic cases here of young 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 kids you know young people uh, dying um, because of because of stabbings yeah. And it's a culture now that, and I talk to, to my, to my friends and my students that are still serving police officers. And, um, and I always work on this theory that, that I believe from my own experience that, you know, eight out of every 10 people that confront me on the street with violence will potentially be carrying a blade. And, um, you know, I asked my, 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 my police officers, friends and students that, and they agree with that. They, they, they agree with that, you know, to the point where, You've got thirteen-year-old kids here carrying blades, pulling a blade at a copper, at a police officer, and not hesitating at all, mate. Not not having any concerns. It is, mate. It's 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 pretty bad. But that's why I always say to my students, don't be put off by the fact that some thirteen-year-old kid, because a thirteen-year-old kid can look the same size as me, six foot, yeah, hundred kilograms. A thirteen-year-old kid, no matter how big or small they are. Even if they're 13, they've still got the means, they've still got the mindset. They want to stab you, they'll stab you. So even if that child is smaller than you and they've, you know, they're threatening you, you've got to, you've got to have the mindset that, that that kid potentially could pull a blade on you and stab you. Yeah. And if you're not prepared for that, then you're not, you're not preparing yourself properly. 
Yeah. And you know, that's something that doesn't like the fact that the younger generation think it's totally acceptable to assault police officers and not have any repercussions. I think it's yep. crazy. <laughs> it, it, it is crazy, mate. But you know, um, one of my, one of my senior students here, um, he's just recently retired. He showed me a video footage of him going hands on one night with a kid who was 13 yeah. and he showed me the photographs of the blade, the, the knife this kid was carrying. And the kid had no hesitation of yeah. using it against him. No hesitation at all. So, you know, it's, we, we have to prepare our students for, for the possibility that, you know, everybody assumes it's going to be a male. They're going to be a big guy. They might be tattooed and that's the person that's going to attack you, but they don't train their students for uh, a 13 year old kid. Yeah. A 13 year old kid has got pimples on his face, but he's got the attitude that he's going to still kill you. Yeah, I always, I always will say it's often that little guy in the back that's very like free that's going to jump through and stab you while their big friend is holding you down, right? So definitely, definitely, mate, definitely, hundred percent. And uh, and I think if if we don't if we don't teach our students this this way of thinking, then we're really we're not preparing them properly. Yeah, I agree. I actually got to get going in a second. So I no think problems, mate. a good place to end it that we, our job as Kramaga instructors or Bujikan in your case uh, to prepare your students for the worst and, and make them as best mentally and physically prepared. Now, if anyone wants to come train with you in Australia, what's the best way to reach you? No problems, mate. They can, um, they can get onto our Facebook page, which is Street Edge Krav Maga International. Um, and look, anybody that wants to contact me, just have a chat or just ask questions, mate, I'm more than happy to, to answer any questions or give advice or, you know, help out in any way I can. Um, just get onto our Facebook page, Street Edge Krav Maga International, send me a, a message and be more than happy to, um, to contact, to get back to you and have a chat. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, with Paul's crazy, awesome pedigree, uh, if you're in Australia, take out a chance opportunity to train with them. Uh, thanks for coming on and I uh, look forward to staying in touch this time a little better. <laughs> Definitely, mate. Yeah, no, thank you very much. It's been, it's been great to, to be on today, mate. And uh, stay safe, buddy. And I look forward to seeing you again very, very soon, mate. All right. Have a good evening. You too, buddy. Stay safe.